Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. HBC Special Report. With Chris Kendall and John Adams. Chris, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. That's good. I wanted to do a report on Southern California for quite a while, and it's not going to be something of a definitive history or anything like that. It's just uh, some stuff that I've noticed and I thought was interesting and I wanted to share with people. And uh, even if you go back to some of the earliest episodes of when we started the afternoon commute almost two years ago now, uh, even back when it was called the morning commute, uh, you'll hear some of those calls peppered with little bits and pieces of California history that I thought were interesting. And so try to get a composite of it, uh, compile it into a report. And uh, I would urge, and I would personally think it would be interesting if people would go and research the areas that they live in and find interesting facts about their surroundings. I just think that people should know their surroundings uh, in general. But a couple of months ago, uh, Aaron Franz over at Trans Resistor Radio uh, beat me to the punch and did uh, a series, as he uh, does uh, normally, uh, does a bunch of different types of series, which I do enjoy on his uh, Trans, Resistor, Trans Resistor Radio podcast. Uh, he did a series called The Alchemical Golden State, mm-hmm. and he went through he went through a. Uh, uh, a bunch of different information having to do with uh, esoteric and occult meanings of the state of California and his perspective on California uh, living here as uh, someone who was did, uh, did not grow up here, uh, basically being a carpetbagger from the East. Just kidding. Just kidding, Aaron. You're not a carpetbagger. Uh, uh, seriously speaking, it's a really good series, so I urge people to go check that out, the uh, Alchemical Golden State at uh, Trans Resistor Radio. And another gentleman who uh, grew up in Southern California, as well as Oklahoma, and uh, also lived here again uh, later on in the 1990s, and uh, then moved back to Oklahoma, is Chris Kendall. And uh, so Chris has a perspective of California that differs from me. I've never lived anywhere but Southern California. And even though I've been in 48 out of 50 states, I've never been off the continent. Chris, you've been to South America. You've uh, been to the edge of the flat earth pretty much. And um, you've walked the Appalachian Trail. So you probably have a different perspective on uh, things, but what's your general uh, thought about California? When you think of California, what do you think of, and 
uh, what do you think of it in the context, briefly, of uh, California being a cultural driver, not only from the perspective of Hollywood, but just in general? I notice that you'll see you know, fashion trends. You'll see uh, sort of things that become uh, oh, you know, hobbies that people will take up and uh you know it'll it'll be a thing out there and then it, it kind of uh, disseminates out into the rest of the country within a few years and then uh notice recently that it it happens more rapidly uh than than it used to i i noticed that uh well i mean you take one thing like skateboarding for instance and uh i remember when i was uh teenage teenager preteen or what have you i would go and visit my dad lived out in california my mom was in oklahoma and i lived with my mom and then i would go back and visit my dad and all that and then uh skateboarding was a thing and then uh it caught on out here later and it was uh, you know, a thing out there for a long time, and then it it, it maybe maybe on the order of something like a decade or something like that before it uh, caught on out here in in uh, right square, right smack smack dab in the middle of the the country, which is Oklahoma, and uh, then uh, I last time I was out there, I noticed that. The, the 80s styles were making a comeback. And now I notice it around here. So, I mean, that wasn't a very... Uh, it wasn't a, one as long as a time frame. It, it, it seemed like it uh, caught on out here pretty quick uh, in comparison to something like skateboarding. But those are just a couple of anecdotes there. I, um, but I, I do think that it is a... Uh, sort of cultural mecca or whatever. Yeah, and as uh, I'll point out in a lot of this information here that uh, gets fleshed out is that it's a testbed. It's kind of a laboratory for a lot of different types of things, a lot of experimental ways of living, a lot of different lifestyles, like you mentioned skateboarding. Um, I don't know if I'll bring that up, but that definitely was uh, something uh, when I was growing up like in like you said, when you were a teenager in the 1980s and really came out of the, the 1960s, like surf, surfing culture, which is something else that, you know, uh, proliferated out into uh, the rest of the country, uh, even in areas where there isn't any uh, oceans. But you'll see people wearing uh, surfwear in the Midwest. So... Uh, a lot of different stuff like that. Well, I wanted to begin uh, with my hometown of the city of Orange, and not just because it's my hometown, but I wanted to kind of provide um, a little something that I thought would be interesting. Maybe some people might not find it interesting, but it's definitely interesting to me. It's kind of a landscape as to uh, what I'm getting at and how uh, certain things can... If you just keep in the back of your mind as we're going through some of this information, how uh, how things uh, within a 
particular area can affect you psychologically, uh, just in the way that you're growing up or just in the way that you live. So uh, I grew up in a city called Orange, California. It's in the county of Orange. And it's roughly 30 miles uh, south of downtown Los Angeles. If you were to take Interstate 5 uh, south and past Disneyland, you will be in the city of Orange, the next city after Anaheim. And if you were to go to Chapman Avenue and take it a few miles down, you would end up in what's called the historic downtown district. And... Uh, it's also called the Orange Plaza, the Orange Circle. All those names are appropriate. And I bring this area up because this is a very well-preserved uh, town. This this area of the city uh, has buildings that were built in the 1800s uh, down there, and they are very well-preserved today through a historical preservation society. And they've been preserved since that time period uh, in a very, very good fashion. They're still standing strong, and um, a lot of the houses in the surrounding neighborhood uh, are still there today from the late 1800s and 1900s, 20s, 30s. And this is interesting because in the surrounding area, even cities uh, surrounding Orange, there's not any other towns that did this. They didn't preserve their downtown areas. They might have preserved little pockets of areas where uh, the homes are a little bit more extravagant um, and old, uh, but not anything that you could point to where the downtown area uh, was. And this is a source of pride for residents in the city of Orange, this preservation of this downtown area. And it makes for an interesting landscape, especially for someone like myself who grew up there, to have this as kind of a background. It provides a little bit of traditionalism, uh, nostalgia, uh, throwing some idealism on top of it. And I always wondered why people had uh, pride in the city so much, and I figured out that it was probably because of this area being so well-preserved. And uh, people even have bumper stickers that say Orange Pride or have signs in the window that say that. And if you look at the surrounding areas, the cities, uh, the big, the bigger cities, and even um, uh, L.A. County, you're going to notice that it's, there is a stark contrast that Orange kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It's really only like five miles wide and ten miles deep. It relatively is a small town amongst big cities. And like I said, nobody else preserved their downtown areas. Their downtown areas fell into degradation due to neglect, or some of them were destroyed by earthquakes. Um, Others just were victims of the time, i.e. postmodernist architecture, and just, quote-unquote, updating uh, stuff with modern building materials. And... um, Like I said, if you look at a picture of Orange from the 1930s and you look at it today, uh, there has been moderate amounts of modernity added to the facade of the building, but not very much, and the the general structure of the area has not changed at all. So if uh, in in times past I've worked with people who uh, lived in 
grew up in Los Angeles or like friends of mine who moved out uh, to the city of Orange and actually moved into apartment buildings in, in the plaza area, uh, they've never really even seen something like that before, even if they grew up somewhere out of state. And so it creates this kind of affection for the area. Uh, uh, people used to even say, like, oh, this looks like Mayberry from the Andy Griffith show. And uh, I even remember kids postulating that the Andy Griffith show was actually filmed in the Orange Circle, which it, of course, was not. But the contrast to the surrounding areas, like uh, like uh, L.A. County and South Orange County, uh, created create an atmosphere of nostalgia and, like I said, idealism. You kind of get, you can get caught up in this uh, kind of escapism. It's kind of a nice place to go. Um, and you kind of have this notion that there was this other time that may have been a better time, more simpler time, and you're reminded of that through the townscape. And uh, what you come to find out if you do a bit of uh, history, you know, going through the history is that even in the 1950s and 60s, they were preserving the town. They were keeping it intact because even people from those time periods were yearning for a different time that was much more simpler. So, uh, you know, people this day and age look at it, say, look at uh, the town and say, oh, it was much more simpler in these older times. Well, the times that you think were simpler, people were actually yearning for a simpler time period. It's very uh, interesting how that... uh, seems to be kind of uh, something innate in humans, uh, thinking back that some other time period was a lot better than one that you're in. But you can go read old history books and find people complaining about the same stuff that you hear people complaining about today. And the surrounding area, as I was alluding to, uh, like the north, uh, North Orange County is basically an extension of southern Los Angeles County, which that in and of itself is an extension of downtown Los Angeles. Now, if you see downtown Los Angeles on a television show or um, in a movie, they're going to show you the gleaming spires that are the buildings. Uh, And those really only exist for a couple of blocks. Uh, Downtown L.A. is not primarily big high-rise buildings. It is mostly industrial and factories left over from uh, another time and, you know, still occupied today by sparse business. But, um, but yeah, that's mostly what it is. And so uh, that spreads out to the rest of the South Bay and the southeastern portion of Los Angeles in the form of what I'd call industrial sprawl. And uh, industrial sprawl, what I mean by that is there is a large amount of buildings that are mostly industrial. They're industrial parks and developments, and that's what they're meant for. And they are built in with a suburban landscape that is not adequately planned. It was not planned out. It was just kind of build this here, build this there. You've got a suburb, suburban development on top of an industrial development on top of 
some power lines next to a freeway, next to a strip mall, next to a mega mall. And they're all mishmashed together, and it makes for a very brutal landscape. In my uh, summation, it does not look very good at all. And I was doing a bit of research, and I was reading up that there were actually some architects back at the time when they were uh, fleshing out a lot of these suburbs, when they started uh, building these grids uh, that would eventually extend all over the rest of the country, that there were some guys who were opposed to this and didn't think it was the best way to do things. But um, they went ahead and decided to do that, where uh, uh, just L.A., that part of L.A. is a mishmash of bad city planning all over. I even would question whether it was actually a conspiracy to have bad city planning or not. It's so bad. <laughs> but um, So you get over that brutal landscape of industrial and uh, decaying the suburbs. And I'm not knocking people who live in the suburbs or who... Uh, I'm not going to take an academic leftist point of view of urban sprawl and everybody's bad who lives in the suburbs or any of that type of stuff. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like people didn't really have a choice of where they had to live. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody asked them if they wanted uh, giant grids of houses that looked exactly the same. It's just kind of what it turned out to be. And a lot of this was on the back was on was uh, was created on the back of fake economic booms and busts and uh, a lot of the industry that existed out here at one time was subsidized by the military industrial complex and the, and you know, the government. And you, you would see like little micro economies pop up out of uh, these subsidized economies. Uh, like the aeronautics industry and the space industry and all sorts of stuff. And then you see the automotive, you know, automobiles becoming very important. And a lot of that has to do uh, with displacement because originally some of these suburbs, and you'll find that some of the architects that we'll talk about uh, were actually kind of very utopian in their idea of, of when it came to planned urban developments. And uh, you kind of have this extreme type of, well, build whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. And then you have this other extreme of where these uh, mid-century modern architects, which I do like a lot of the architecture from that era, um, they were into the idea of building these utopias where you never have to leave your general area. You're going to live in a house and it's going to be built right next to the civic center and it's going to be down the street from your job and the uh, local grocery store is going to be right across the street from that. So you won't have to travel very far. But when you've got a fake economy with booms and busts and all that stuff factored into it, you have a lot of displacement and you also have um, artificial housing prices, especially out here that get factored into that as well. So people get displaced all the time. And it even, you know, it started even as early as the 1950s where somebody moves into a neighborhood because it's close to their job. Well, next thing you know, you're out of a job and you've got to drive 30 miles to get to the place that you're now employed at. So the automobile became very important in that aspect as well. And entire economies were based off of that, uh, you know, 
auto parts and all sorts of things like that. So, like I said, it's an industrial landscape out there. And um, when you go to the south of Orange County, um, which is uh, south of the city of Orange, you have a very similar landscape, but yet different in a sense, because it's still very homogenized. Um, but it's homogenized in a different way because that area was uh, developed with the idea that it was going to be a higher standard of living. It was going to be uh, uh, for people with more money. Uh, even as far back as the 60s when they first started developing it, that was the idea. And the original planners and designers of the city of Irvine, because that that's all developed on a place called the Irvine Ranch, um, they had in mind this idea of what I was describing before, where it's kind of this utopian idea of living. Um, but it didn't actually pan out that way, and nobody followed the original idea from the developers. And now today you have grids and grids and grids of gated communities and uh, prefabricated McMansions and uh you know, mega strip malls and the mega strip mall is something that actually came about in my lifetime, um, which Chris and I have touched on many times before. And that is the monoculture, the mass consumers monoculture. And I literally remember a time when you could drive out, you know, I used to go out to San Clemente to go visit my grandparents and you could drive out towards that way, which San Clemente is the last city in, uh, Orange County before you get to San Diego County. So you drive out that 50 miles or whatever it is from Orange and um, you'd actually see open fields. You'd actually see farmlands with actual real live animals. Used to see that down there. And then around about the early 90s, uh, they just built mega malls on top of all of that farmland. And that's what you have today. The, the mega mall with the Walmart the Target, the Bed Bed Bath & Beyond, the Kohl's, the Lowe's, the Home Depot, every fast food entity under the sun. It's all in one place for you right there. And I've noticed, too, in other cities, they've actually reconfigured entire towns so that the flow goes into this, uh, you know, ultra uber corporate mega mall. And they... uh, you know they'll re they'll restructure the entire town so it, it, so that's where you hit first, and once again terrible city planning because that's where you get gridlock and congestion in this in this area where they mash everything all up together on top of you know all the stuff I said plus the mega thirty three plex theater that's stuffed in there as well so everybody wants to go there all at the same time. And this happens in every uh, city that they do this in. And so these things are all over uh, southern Orange County, along with, like I said, the prefab homes everywhere. And it's largely an area, unfortunately, I I don't, uh, I'm not uh, knocking anybody for for wanting to have a better life for themselves or their family or their children or whatever they think it is. Um, But largely a lot of people live out there. It's, it's, it's very status oriented. 
it's kind of like you got to have the the house with the Mercedes Benz with the you know the view of the beach. But I never go to the beach because I got a swimming pool, and I never go out in the sun because there's a tanning salon at the shop at the strip mall down the street. And so it's very kind of status oriented. That's that's the impression that I've got from living out here is people don't really care too much about all of the the things that would be afforded by living in an area five miles away from the beach, but um, it's more of a status thing of like, oh, I live out here and this is where you live if you make this type of money, right? So it's a very bleak uh, landscape and uh, orange still retains a sense, you know, it's got its, um, you know, postmodernist architecture, unfortunately, and it's got its strip malls and it's got its junky apartments and, uh, you know, crappy housing tracks and uh, stack them and pack them condos. That, that's another thing that's getting built everywhere all over California is these stack them and pack them condos, the Agenda 21 condos. And, um, but for the most part, I must say that the city planning of Orange is, is still pretty good. It, it, they didn't let uh, the Walmart and the Best Buy or anything take over anything and restructure the town. Uh, it looks like when those things, those things that actually didn't even uh, exist when I was growing up there, um, they were not in that city, but they came probably about 15, 16 years ago now. You started seeing those things pop up, but they, it looks like what they did is they told those places that they had to uh, occupy spaces that were previously occupied by something else. So like the Walmart is where the Broadway department store used to be and the Best Buy is where an old bowling alley was. So in that respect, it's pretty good. Another uh, thing I wanted to mention um, about the city of Orange that I thought was pretty unique was the city of Villa Park. And the city of Villa Park is actually a city within the city. And I'm not talking about like the city of London or the Vatican or anything like that. I'm talking about this is actually a city that is surrounded by orange on all of its borders. So the entire city sits within right in the middle of, the, of orange. And Villa Park's an interesting city. It's one of the smallest cities in California. And it uh, perpetually has the lowest, one, one of the lowest crime rates in California, mostly because it's all residential except for four schools and a shopping center. And uh, a lot of celebrities have lived there over the years because it is pretty exclusive housing, uh, economically speaking. And even back in the 1980s, uh, growing up there, um, I used to live in an area of orange that was right across the street from it. If you cross the street, you were in orange. And if you went across the street, you're in Bill park. But, um, and I knew a lot of people who lived there, but yeah, it was like angels, baseball players live there. Um, Kevin Costner used to live there and went to school there. Uh, Jose Feliciano and, uh, Axel Rose lived there at one point. Um, so, uh, like I said, very exclusive. Back in the 1980s, there was like $5 million homes there, $10 million homes, homes with 15, 20 bedrooms way back in the hills there. So um, it's uh, kind of an interesting area. And it actually used to be an orange grove. 
And uh, when I went to high school there, you'd go into the library and there's this picture on the wall there of the school on opening day. And there was a dirt road leading up to it. And it was the only thing in the middle of an orange grove. So um, this entire region out here, that's another question I have. It's a looming question. Everything out here, as far as the eye can see, all the way from Los Angeles, all the way down to South Orange County, was agriculture. Walnut groves, almond groves, olive trees, orange groves, lemon groves, alfalfa fields, lima bean fields, cherry trees, apple orchards. Um, you just look at all the names of the streets and you can know what type of trees used to be out here. <laughs> Because that was the trees that they cut down to make those streets. That's how it uh, usually goes. But um, this entire area was agriculture. And then at some point, because you can li literally go to the point in time, which was like uh, the late 19th century, that they decided they were going to start uh, start to move forward with development. And I looked for kind of a reason for that, and I never can find an adequate one, but the one that you see across all the history books is property values rose, and so did property taxes, which forced people to subdivide their land. And you got to think, like, who decides that? Like, who decides that property taxes are going to rise, and how does somebody decide that this, that all of these you know, there's going to be subdivision on farms. Hey, I've got this great idea. We're just going to start building houses here. And then it just goes from there. It's it's a very strange thing. It's almost uh, as strange as uh, if you try to find out the real reason why they built railroads everywhere. So somebody somewhere or some people somewhere decided at some point, hey, no more agriculture. We're just going to build swaths of houses everywhere. And um, I find that to be pretty interesting because as, just as far back uh, or just as near back as the 1960s, you could look at pictures of Orange County and it is still full to this day of eucalyptus trees and agriculture everywhere. And now you will not find an orange tree or eucalyptus tree anywhere. They're just all gone. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty uh, crazy. The um, rapid change that, uh, we've seen just in a short amount of time. And uh, so another interesting thing I wanted to mention was if you go deep back into uh, what's called Santiago Canyon, um, which is behind Villa Park, and you're going to go deep way back there, you're going to find another canyon back there. And that canyon is called Black Star Canyon. Okay. And Black Star Canyon is called Black Star Canyon because there was a coal mining company back then in the 1800s called Black Star Mining Company. But I started hearing about Black Star Canyon when I was probably in middle school. And the way you hear about Black Star Canyon growing up in the 80s and 90s is that satanic rituals go on out in Black Star Canyon. And that's all you ever heard about Black Star Canyon growing up was that you heard some, whether they were tall tales or rumors or whether it was real, I'm sure after it, you know, 
went through the cycle of getting passed down from person to person. Um, it got exaggerated upon, at least to a certain extent, but to a certain extent, I might think this stuff is true, but here's what, here's, uh, you can even go on Wikipedia and Boxstar Canyon has its own Wikipedia page, which I was not aware of until recently. But, um, yeah, you would hear about people, uh, uh, animals being sacrificed, people dancing around fires in uh, black robes, um, hear about people getting murdered out there, um, all sorts of bizarre stuff having to do with satanic black masses and cults and things like that, uh, which was strange for a small, you know, like a small town but, uh, to have those type of stories uh, proliferating through this town. So, like I said, you can go on Wikipedia and look up Black Star Canyon in Orange County, and you'll see a lot of those stories. Another story I used to hear about Black Star Canyon, which was odd, was that sometime in the 70s, they had an access road through there. And apparently a school bus went off the road into the canyon and crashed with a bunch of children in it. And um, people used to go down there and take photographs of themselves with this crashed bus. And the bus was just left there for like a really long time. Apparently only like a couple of years ago, did they actually like take the bus out of the Canyon? But of course that always went along with uh, creepy tales of people seeing ghosts of children or hearing children screaming. And like I said, the there's other stories that are affiliated with the Canyon, but I just told you the stories that I heard personally. Um, so, uh, but there's other weird tales of all this type of stuff out there. And I just thought it was, uh, interesting and strange that, um, that type of stuff would actually exist. So I can't vouch for those tales. I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that. So, but, uh, just weird tales, but speaking of weird tales and strange rituals and black stars, if you go back up to the orange circle on the Northwest corner of, of, uh, the plaza, there is a building there that was built in the 1800s and it is called the Campbell Opera House. And in the lower portion of that building today, there is a beauty Academy. Um, in the eighties, there used to be a record store there, but in the upper portion was where the opera house was. But since 1923, there has not been an opera house there. Instead, there is a temple of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. And this is advertised to uh, everyone in the town uh, by way of a neon sign that's been flashing there ever since I can remember that says Masonic Temple, even when I didn't know what a Masonic Temple was. And I wouldn't really bring this up because every town in the United States, every small town, little city, little blip on the map has a Masonic Lodge or a Masonic Center or a temple or something. Um, but we're going to talk about Masonic Temples uh, throughout Los Angeles County uh, in one of the next uh, portions of this discussion. And this particular Masonic temple is interesting because most recently in the Orange County Weekly, which is a local rag, a newspaper um, that spends most of its time seeing how bad Republicans, Christians, and gun owners are, and then uh, the rest of the magazine is devoted to things like uh, sex shops and escort services and head shops and uh, what movies are playing and what bar has the best draft beer and which Led Zeppelin cover bands playing in town. Um, 
But they decided to give the Freemasons a pass, and they they recently had this article a couple of months ago talking about how, um, and they were interviewing people from the Orange City Lodge there in the uh, circle. And what they were talking about is how uh, Generation X didn't step up to the plate with Freemasonry, and luckily the Millennials are here to save Freemasonry. And the local Orange Freemasons are happy about the fact that the uh, Millennials are stepping up to the plate. They're into the occult. They're into the arcane. They want to know the secrets. They want to have power. And uh, yay for young people. And on the cover of the uh, newspaper there, uh, they had uh, it, it was a cover story, and it had a young gentleman there uh, showing off all his um, Masonic jewels. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, Considering the amount of time, like I said, they devote to saying how bad bad and evil Christians and Republicans and gun owners are all day. And the Masons are good, though. So just remember that. But on that same note, the reason I brought that up was that within a square mile of this uh, Masonic temple, there must be about 10 different churches, all different denominations of Christianity. In fact, on the opposite block, there's a church that occupies uh, what used to be a uh, movie theater called the Orange Movie Theater. Now it's called Sunlight Ministries. And I've never once seen any one of those churches saying, hey, there's a bunch of guys who uh, work in civic institutions and sit on the board of the local university, and they're all worshiping Lucifer down there on the corner. Yeah, so I've I've never seen that, and so none of the churches in the area, like I said, there's old churches in the area, there's churches that have been there for, you know, 100 years, and uh, they probably are run by Freemasons, too. So that's the gist that I'm picking up there, because nobody talks about that. Um, As far as... Anything else that I find uh, particularly interesting that we uh, can touch on in this uh, in this uh, report is architecture and architecture and like like I said lifestyles and uh, particular ways of living play an important part in the makeup of the landscape of Los Angeles and uh, it's definitely important in Southern California and uh, orange orange stands out because of one of the, one of the things is uh, there are three different neighborhoods that were created by the architect Joseph Eichler, and Joseph Eichler did a number of houses up north, um, primarily uh, in the hills of right above Candlestick Park. I don't, I'm not even sure if Candlestick Park exists anymore, but um, I used my aunt was really into these Eichler houses, and she took me around there one time. I remember uh, way back when, but Joseph Eichler was a mid-century architect, and he uh, wanted to design uh, houses with an environment uh, that would be able to, where you would be able to make it accessible for the outside environment to be accessible inside the house. That's what his primary idea was for designing houses. Like I said, he designed most of his houses in Northern California. I think even Steve Jobs claims he grew up in an Eichler home. And um, there's a couple, there might be like one or two neighborhoods in the valley, but there are three neighborhoods in the city of Orange. And these houses are, you know, um, sought after by collectors and uh, people who are into into these 
into this particular niche of style of home. And, um, yeah, there are three neighborhoods there and they are very, uh, odd homes, especially if you're, you know, used to a standard, uh, split level ranch home or something like that. Um, uh, you could just go check it. You could look up Eichler house, E I C H L E R. You can see what those look like. They don't, some of them don't have front doors. Uh, some of them have a front door, but it leads into a glass enclosed atrium with plants inside. Um, and then a lot of the ideas behind his homes were that there were minimal amount of walls and a lot of light uh, able to come into the house. And uh, so, yeah, Orange is a rare place of for these uh, uh, homes to be built in. If uh, you move up a little bit north of L.A., you are going to come to Anaheim. And, of course, Anaheim is the home of Disneyland. And there's only really a couple of things I want to mention about Disneyland um, that hasn't, you know, obviously people know uh, the occult aspects of Disney and Disneyland. But I'm not going to touch on that. I'm only going to touch on some empirical stuff real quick. And there is a cult of Disney, especially uh, with people who live in the general area where Disneyland is easily accessible. And I've encountered these people myself. They are part of the cult of Disney. And these people will get these year passes and they will go to Disney on a weekly basis. They'll go to Disneyland on a weekly basis. Wow. And I've worked with, I've worked with someone like this. I've worked with, I, I've met people like this. Most of them tend to be female, just in my experience, but I actually do know one uh, male who is like this, where they will, they will go to Disneyland every weekend. They will go to Disneyland after they get off work. They will go to Disneyland all the time. And a lot of the things I've heard is Disneyland is fun. Disneyland is such a happy place. Why wouldn't I want to go to Disneyland if I can? Um, it's so, you know, that type of thing. It's all associated with with uh, escapism and joy and um, and that type of thing. There's almost like a like a weird cultish like celebration of humanity attached to it or something too. Like, like there, there really is that type of mindset. And, um, I've encountered people, uh, I used to live next to a lady who she could not, she, she told me this, she said, I have to wear something with Mickey mouse on it every day. I love Mickey mouse that much. She even named her dog Mickey mouse. Her dog was named Mickey mouse. Um, I've been to people's houses and signed their loans and I'm not, I'm not joking about this. This one woman had framed pictures of Disney characters. Like you would have framed pictures of your family members on her wall, um, on her uh, nightstand, you know, like stuff like that. Like she had like pictures of Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. Um, and so they, these people are obsessed with Disney, and a lot of them, like I said, it, it has to do with living in this particular area and having it very easily accessible to you and getting kind of wrapped up in it. I have to say, like, I went to Disneyland less than a handful of times when I was a little kid. It was always too expensive to go. My parents would always say, no, it's too expensive. And then I went, you know, uh, when I was a teenager, I had a friend who had a year pass, and him and I, everybody used to think we were brothers. So I was able to, you know, 
get in with his past because we look the same. Um, but I never like actually found it very interesting. I wasn't into it like that at all. Um, it's kind of a place to kind of go cruise around and, you know, maybe look for girls or you could, they used to have bands there sometimes. And, um, and so, yeah, the, there are people that are really into that. There's a, there's a total uh, subculture of Disney. I just wanted to mention this cause this is pretty bizarre of these pin collectors, Disney pin collectors. They give up these annual pins on a certain day and they're totally aware of this as a marketing aspect that, there's these people who like live for these anniversary pins and they're involved in this Disney subcult of anniversary pins where these people collect these pins and they, if they don't like get in on that day to get the pin, they will like try to buy them off eBay for like $200. Mm -hmm. And they have like these, uh, like these chat rooms where these people like go and meet up at Disneyland and trade pins with each other. And it's this whole little subcult of, of Disney pin collecting. It's it's uh, pretty strange. I knew some. I, I knew a guy who was into that. Who was into the Disney pin collecting cult. Um, the last thing I'll mention is uh, I used to know a girl who played Mickey Mouse and played Minnie Mouse and Donald Duck at Disneyland. And this was in the 1990s. And here's what she said about the security system at Disneyland. She said that from what she heard and what she has uh, seen uh, with her own eyes is that if you have a child lost at Disneyland, I'm speaking in the 1990s, I don't know what they have today, but if you had a photograph of your child, they could find your child in less than five minutes. That's what she said. So I'm guessing they had facial recognition cameras all the way back in the 90s at Disneyland. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, and so empirical evidence of that is that I had a, a friend who was kind of a ne'er-do-well, and this one time he decided uh, in a very crowded area he was going to try to swipe some chicken nuggets uh, when they uh, put them out there. They They would, at the snack shack, they would just place them out on a ledge there and then they call your number right uh-huh. so my friend decided he was going to go swipe some when they put it out there on the ledge so he went and swiped some chicken nuggets and decided he was going to walk in a very fast fashion off to the other side of the park well they caught him in like 10 minutes and kicked him out hmm. and we're talking in a pretty crowded area right yeah. Uh, another time there was another friend of mine, he got in a fight there. There was, there was people crowded around. There's no way that the security guards could have even known which two guys were getting in a fight because the fight dispersed before the security guards could even arrive. The security guards knew exactly which guys got in the fight and they detained them. And the story that I heard from my friend was that they put you in a dark room and keep you there till the Anaheim police show up. So they have a Disney gulag as well. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, another uh, interesting thing is um, that they have people there who are spies, and not even the people who work at Disneyland know who the spies are. So there are people there pretending to be families there, like, you know, pretending that they're on rides, pretending that they're... Um, 
you know, just pretending like they're walking around and uh, having a good time at Disneyland. And they are actually spying on not only the the patrons, but they're also spying on the workers and everything else. And apparently there are just cameras everywhere all over the place. And like I said, this was the 1990s. So that, and then I, I remember uh, 2012 reading an article. I think I sent this to you, Chris, uh, that uh, late lady researcher Suzanne Passell put out an article called uh, Disney, the Department of Defense and Biometrics. And um, I wouldn't recommend everything that that lady puts out, but that article was definitely interesting. And it was basically talking about how Disney was a DOD laboratory for uh, for surveillance. And I thought that was really interesting. I was like saying, well, yeah, absolutely. I can attest to that because of all the security that definitely exists there. And like I said, that was back in uh, the 1990s. And um, I do have one more thing I wanted to touch on, but uh, do you have any commentary on anything I've uh, put out there so far, Chris? Oh, you're talking about brought to mind uh, some some stuff we talked about in the past, like with uh, well, there's Celebration Florida. You've heard of that, where it's it's an entire town. I think it's owned by Disney Company. And uh, yeah, you could move there. I guess it's anybody, anybody, any member of the public could move in there. And and uh, yeah, it's it's literally a Disney town. And we talked about. Uh, I don't remember where this was, and I couldn't find the article. I, I thought I had it saved, but maybe I don't. But anyway, it was uh, Target stores. Uh, had a, and I don't know if there's, there's maybe multiple ones of these around the country, but it's like a town center with, with, with Target at, at the center, like you do all your shopping at Target. And, and there's apartment complexes and like, I think townhomes. And it is basically a community that is centered around Target stores. Yeah, there's one in, in downtown L.A. I was actually going to talk about that when we talk about downtown L.A. Um, it is Target Town. Target Town, yeah. I tried looking that up, and I couldn't find anything on Target Town. Other stuff. Yeah, there's a there's an article from Newsweek, um, but I don't even think Newsweek exists anymore. But yeah, there was an article in Newsweek. I, I will dig the article up. I have the article somewhere, and uh, I'll dig it up for later in the report. Definitely. Yeah, and you see in these, uh, well, if you certain dystopian films and stuff, you know, it's everything is, uh, or certain ones, depends on what point you look at, where, oh, you know, corporations have taken over and, uh, and I've, you know, heard, uh, uh, like Alan Watt will mention the, the certain futurist writings and stuff where, you know, the goal is to have a new form of, feudalism where CEOs of corporations will be the new feudal overlords and it's uh, well neo-feudalism is what it's called and it just yeah it just makes me think of that when I see stuff like this where you have these communities where they're pretty pretty much owned and I, I don't even know if they have sort of like their own security, maybe stuff like that. And, and, and it's just sort of a contained community that's 
corporate run and and operated i think it i think it goes that far it's 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 pretty much completely corporate controlled yeah um there uh <clears throat> it's it's interesting you mention that because a lot of the uh, architecture uh, that was supposed to be utopian in nature, like I was mentioning, that there's a lot of these architects, especially um, what was termed uh, brutalist architecture in the 1960s and 70s, ended up being used as the backgrounds for a lot of the dystopian sci-fi movies of the 70s. So, like... Um, I thought that, I th- just thought that was uh, something interesting to note because um, in the movie Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, they actually used the um, they actually used the campus of UC Irvine, which is built in a kind of uh, uh, sort of a kind of brutalist fashion and a um, very utopian idea behind the concept of the building of UC- of UCI. And then THX 1138 was filmed at at the BART station in Oakland, I think it was. Oh, really? And so, yeah, if you look at all the architecture in THX 1138, before they even opened the BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, the BART Center, um, they were using... Uh, they were using it for the for the background of uh, THX one one three eight, and it's done in a brutalist architectural fashion. So, like I said, there's a lot of experimental architecture, and you have these utopian ideas of where you're going to live in this one area, and and it, it sounds pretty convenient. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds pretty convenient. It'd be nice to. Uh, have the grocery store down the street and not have to leave the general area. But I guess it depends on who's the one designing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like having a, uh, sort of con- contained, or or captive audience, so to speak, I guess, or where it, it, you know, you have a built-in customer base. It's, I guess it's kind of nice for the corporation too. You know. Well, absolutely, and I don't think um, maybe the architects didn't know, but um, definitely, I'm sure the planners of how things were going to go knew that, and, and definitely, you know, the people didn't know, like back in the '50s, '60s, and '70s, that there was going to be these corporate mega malls everywhere that where you were going to be subservient to whatever's in your area. Well, they already have this place, town, you know, the, the traditional town centers, of course, with uh, you know these Walmart superstores. That's that's what they've done here in this town where I live. There's about a hundred. Of uh, some hundred some odd thousand people, and then they uh, originally years ago, back in the eighties, they replaced the regular town center with all the independent owned stores with a with a mall. They called it the Central Mall, and they uh, dug up half the town, half the downtown, and then put in the mall, and then that 
that was sort of uh, predominant for you know several decades, and then the the big the box store started to you know gradually gain prominence, you know, with Walmart, and then uh, now you have uh, a completely different centralization of the of the town or the population center or the or the the community center would be certainly walmart i mean if you i've talked about this before like if you um hear a family member mention oh i ran into so-and-so and it's like oh well, let me guess who's probably walmart and that's where the new town center is it's uh your your super center, your Walmart super center, where they have grocery, they have the groceries and they have the bank and they have the, uh, the eyeglass place and everything right inside that that store there. But but I noticed last time I was in there, which uh, I, I don't go to Walmart very often at all. It's only like if I um, like last time I went there, I just went in there to buy one item. I was in the area and the store I went to didn't have it, so Walmart was right there, and I just went in there real quick to buy like one item. And I noticed that uh, the uh, space that they have in there for, um, you know, like the eyeglass center or they have that's that there was a couple of those that were boarded up. I thought that was interesting. Like, you know, uh, I don't know whether what, what the deal is with that. Like maybe Walmart charges too high a rent for the place or what's going on. But uh, look, they only look like they're about half occupied. I thought that was interesting. Well, that's probably because they're using the Walmart centers for uh, Jade Helm. Yeah, there was probably uh, troops in their training or something. This is the second segment of our talk on Southern California, and I wanted to go over some structures in the Los Angeles area. And I guess the reason I wanted to go over them is because we don't even notice what's around us, um, what architecture is around us, uh, what buildings are around us, why they're there. And I'm also going to raise the question, too, that I don't have the answer to rhetorical as to why certain structures are saved from being raised or damaged or anything like that and why other structures aren't and I'm not I'm, I'm going to be objective about it because I, I definitely would say that some of these uh, structures definitely have character and I like them uh, but I just have to question as to why uh, they have been saved. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm being half facetious when I'm asking these questions. So um, I'll go through a series of some of these buildings that are in the Southern California area, mostly around Los Angeles here. But and then if we have time, I'll get into uh, some other stuff like some of the industry in the surrounding area that we don't even notice as well, that we just take for granted. That's all around us. 
And so before we go to L.A., we have to go back to Orange County. And in Orange County, in the city of Laguna Niguel, there's a building that still uh, exists today. It's called the Chet Fairfield Federal Building, and it was built in 1970, um, and it was built by the architect, uh, it was designed by the architect, uh, William uh, Perriera. And uh, we'll get into him later in the next segment when we talk about uh, different people. He was definitely a culture creator of some sorts. And um, uh, this building uh, that is now known as the Chet Fairfield uh, Federal Building was commissioned to be built by the Rockwell Aeronautics Corporation. Um, But near the tail end of the 70s there, uh, the story goes they, that the Vietnam War effort was winding down, so uh, Rockwell didn't actually need the building anymore. So, you know, they did what, you know, people normally do, like if, you know, you build a home or something that you um, realize you can't pay for it or something, you turn it over to the federal government and give it to them. And so that's what Rockwell did. They actually traded the building for two other buildings in the Los Angeles area. It's awfully nice to have that option. And and so, yeah, they never actually moved into the structure. So the structure kind of sat there for quite a while uh, before the government, I guess, uh, decided that they were going to make it kind of commercial real estate and rent it out to people. And that's what it does still today. And I just found that kind of strange. I mean, knowing how wasteful government is about everything and anything, uh, they didn't decide to tear the building down or sell off the land or do something like that, but they kept the structure intact. And the interesting thing about this structure is it is built like an Assyrian ziggurat. And that's actually what the building is known as, the ziggurat. And if you don't know what an Assyrian ziggurat is, is a Babylonian pyramid. And so, uh, yeah, and that's what it is. And it's got kind of a futuristic tinge to it, you know, kind of a, something maybe a 1960s, 70s sci-fi movie. You know, maybe uh, that's where the uh, Anunnaki live or something like that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's that's what you uh, get out of this building. So, um So, yeah, we have the Assyrian, the Babylonian uh, motif here. And if you go about 60-some-odd miles up the 5 freeway north into the city of Commerce, which I unfortunately used to work there, um, of course, the city of Commerce, very interesting name, Commerce, um, the only thing happening in the city of Commerce is an out is an open-air mall called the Citadel. And the Citadel uh, opened as an open-air mall uh, in 1991. Um, But before it became an open-air mall, it was a factory that was built in 1930 for the Samson Rubber and Tire Company. And... Uh, this company was started uh, by a guy named Adolf Schindler, and he decided that uh, Samson was a good name to indicate strength in your tires. And if you're not familiar with the story of Samson, it's from the Book of Judges and uh, the Bible of the Old Testament. And Samson was a strong man, and 
so that's where the strength comes from. Of course, the Freemasons love the story of Samson as well. And that's what I'm thinking Mr. Schindler was uh, coming from here when he decided to fashion his factory uh, with a facade of an Assyrian city-state, a temple, a citadel, a castle. And so that's what the factory looked like. Well, around about the 70s, when Uniroyal tires, uh, Samson became Uniroyal tire, and they no longer needed that facility anymore, that uh, they decided to make it a, a historical landmark. And so the City of Commerce sold it to a developer, and they developed it and turned it into an open-air mall, but they kept the facade of the Babylonian city-state. And so it still sits there today, and you can see it right off the fire freeway as you are coming into the city-state that is Los Angeles. And so, yeah, it's not anything that they decided to knock down. In fact, they even added on to it. They even added, there's a, there's a hotel there, the uh, Winmar Hotel, and that's even kind of built in a ziggurat fashion. And then you make your way up into Hollyweird, Hollywood, 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 whatever you want to call it. And you get to Hollywood Boulevard. And you take Hollywood Boulevard until you get to Highland Avenue. And on the corner of Highland and Hollywood, there is an an open-air mall, once again. And this, op this open-air mall uh, was built, like, about 15 years ago. I haven't actually looked it up as to when it was. I, I'm pretty sure it was built, like, around 2000, somewhere around there. And all the time I grew up in, that, in uh, Orange County in L.A., there's nothing of significance, really, on the corner of Hollywood Highland and... Ho Hollywood for the longest time had kind of uh, fallen into decline and people were happy with that. There's kind of these subcultures, alternative cultures that were, uh, you know, kind of lived in the ironic parody of Hollywood that it was in and of itself. And people like that. And so now today you have a lot of the corporations have moved into the Hollywood area, kind of taken it over and, uh, gentrified it, redone it. And I know that a lot of the uh, people who originally lived there don't like that. And this is one of the examples is this open-air mall that opened up on the corner of Hollywood and Highland. And I've never actually been to this mall um, for pleasure. I delivered there one time. There was a theater there where they hold, like, the Grammy Awards or something like that. And I, I delivered to the Grammy Awards one time. And... I did not, I was unaware of the motif of this open air mall, which is, of course, Assyrian Babylonian architecture. But it's very interesting as to where they got the decor, the actual stones and, and um, the mosaic piece and the pillars that they used for this open air mall. Because the first time I ever saw it, I was dr casually driving past the uh, facility there, and I saw uh, the structure, and I said, I recognize that they have these giant, massive stone elephants that are acting as pillars, like they're holding up the they're holding up the uh, structure with their trunks. And I said, I recognize those; those are from the movie Intolerance by D. W. Griffith. 
And so it's not because I'm some movie buff and I happen to know that. It's just because uh, if you read Kenneth Anger's book, The Hollywood Babylon, um, he talks about that movie Intolerance, and that's the way I found about out about that movie and uh, watched it many years ago. And it's a silent film from the early 20th century. And there is a section of the movie on Babylon. And Griffith went so far as to build a life-size set of Babylon on the corner of Hollywood and Sunset, which stood there for many years uh, in decline. And that's kind of what uh, Kenneth Anger was using in his book as kind of the foundation for the idea of Hollywood Babylon, that uh, there actually was a real Hollywood Babylon sitting there in decline, and that's kind of what he was uh, saying there with uh, his very tabloid-esque, gossipy uh, book there, Hollywood Babylon, about a lot of the secret lives of early Hollywood movie stars. Um, but apparently, uh, when they tore, finally tore the set down, somebody saved a lot of that uh, decor, and they ended up using it for this open-air mall. Uh, that now stands there today, which again is Babylonian Assyrian architecture. And I'm just I'm just curious as to why why you would choose that. I mean, we're in America, aren't we? Why didn't you put up some Norman Rockwell pieces or like you know the picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware or Paul Revere's Midnight Ride? What is so interesting about the open air mall and commercial real estate interested in Babylonian architecture? Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. So, um, of course, I know the answer to this, but um, I'll just say this. It's very interesting that that is all that that decor is associated with commerce because the original commercial marketplace was the Babylonian city state. That's where you would go to to buy your things. So it does make sense, but to the average person, it might not make a lot of sense. They might, you know, think of, you know, why, you know, why don't we have a picture of, uh, you know, like babes in bikinis? That that would be, you know, American culture. Yeah. Babes in bikinis holding cronuts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, yes, the entire area is rife with uh, symbolism um, within your malls and within your uh, places of business. And interestingly enough, directly across the street from that open-air mall is a place called the El Capitan Theater. And the El Capitan Theater is not has not always been a theater. And today, right now, Speaking, it is owned by Disney, and it is the home of Jimmy Kimmel Live. Okay, so the buffoon, the buffoonish uh, late night talk show host Jimmy Kimmel hosts his show from the El Capitan Theater, and uh, it still maintains the same facade that it always has. It still has the same cornerstone uh, there. Nobody has done anything to uh, to do away with what the El Capitan Theater was originally. And that was the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry Hollywood Masonic Lodge. Mm-hmm. 
okay? But it still maintains the decor. I mean, I would think to myself, hey, if I'm buying this building, I want to get rid of the old stuff and I want to put my name on it. You know, I want to make this, you know, John's Burger Shack. But all of the Freemasonic stuff is kept intact all over the building. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this Masonic Lodge is interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, this is where all of the Hollywood movie stars uh, back in the 1920s and 30s were members of this lodge. Uh, people like Harold Lloyd and uh, W.C. Fields and Laurel and Hardy and Cecil B. DeMille. And D.W. Griffith. And this building was built by a man by the name of John Austin. And John Austin is also famous for building the Griffith Park Observatory. And I would just refer uh, to the Vigilant Citizen website. You can look up... uh, his uh, analysis of the Griffith Park Observatory, as well as the downtown Los, Ad- Los Angeles Public Library and all of the uh, symbolism associated with those two buildings. I wouldn't recommend everything that the Vigilant Citizen puts out, but uh, those two articles I definitely recommend in context with uh, this particular talk. So John Austin was uh, very well known as an architect and a Freemasonic architect, it appears. And so, once again, you have a structure that has been kept intact and is untouched as far as its facade decor, yet it's being used for something else, and it's owned by Disney. Yeah, if you look at the Google Street View of the uh, El Capitan Theater, and then directly across the street, there's like a mall at the Sephora, and look at the the wall art and the decor on the outside of the building it's it's all babylonian uh like gods and stuff inscribed onto the wall and like uh like a relief like a uh clearly blatantly babylonian symbology on the exterior directly across yeah absolutely and um you know, I don't have uh, the capability. I know that the that the lodge uh, has some sort of inscription on the top of the building, and I'm not sure exactly what that says. Uh, if you if you have access to look that up, Chris, uh, see what the what the inscription is at the top of that building. It says something strange on there. Yeah, let's see if I can look it up. I can't see it from the street view. But yeah, I guess the point I'm trying to make is you see these buildings and they're kept intact for for such long periods of time and they choose these specific buildings and these uh, specific things to build in a particular fashion. And just like I was mentioning, you have the, you know, LA Public Library and the Griffith Park Observatory, um, which I, I'm not going to really get into, but they, these are... These all have very uh, occultic, you know, uh, inscriptions on everything and 
very strange statues and paintings all over the place. And uh, these things have meaning. But everybody go, you know, everybody can visit the Griffith Park Observatory. Um, I'm sure thousands of people a year visit there, and they have no idea as to what it is any of that stuff is saying or what those pictures mean. Or this inscription says, Freemasonry builds its temples among the nations and in the hearts of men. Well, I think that can be the name of the, sec- the second section of our talk here. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh-huh. That's a perfect title for the, the second section because... That's exactly what I was trying to say. And it's funny that that would be in Hollywood and that it would be on a, on a structure that's still used to broadcast out uh, entertainment and the, uh, it's sort of a icon in Hollywood. It's well-known landmark and it just happens to be dedicated to Freemasonry with a, with a inscription talking about how, Freemasons build their temples within the hearts of men. I wonder if Hollywood. Ha- I wonder if Hollywood has anything to do with that process. And it's owned by Disney. And it's owned by Disney. <laughs> there you go. Another interesting thing about that particular lodge is that directly across the street is the Grauman's Chinese Theater, where they where they have the handprints and the blueprints of you know. John Wayne's boots and Marilyn Monroe's uh, uh, handprints and all that stuff. Uh-huh. And and um, and so it's a very famous place to have a movie premiere. And uh, apparently there's underground tunnels that lead from the Grumman's Chinese Theater to the Masonic Lodge. And I guess back in the day, if stars wanted to avoid... Uh, publicity, they would go through the underground tunnels to the Masonic Lodge to go and have a a real after party. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, um, you know, a bit of interesting uh, lore there as well. Um, Some, just some quick notation on some lesser known buildings would be the uh, down, if you go into the downtown area, there is a Federal Reserve building, and there's actually two Federal Reserve buildings. There's one that's in use, and there's one that's not in use. Uh, the old Federal Reserve building today, uh, as of like a couple of years ago, I was cracking up when I first saw this. They've actually turned them into lofts. Ah, okay. Right? They, they turned the old, and it's called, you know, lofts at the reserve. Hmm. Oh. You know, uh, some uh, Agenda 21 uh, hipster lost, I'm sure. And um, so, yeah, but this old Federal Reserve building uh, is very temple-esque, and and over the doorway there is some Egyptian uh, iconography-type stuff going on there. And then on the same street, which that's on Olympic, you know, the Avenue of the Gods, um, directly down the street is the old Standard Oil building. And once again, you have another building where they kept the cornerstone and it still says the Standard Oil Building, yet in the 90s, it was purchased by Hertz Rent-A-Car. Wow. Okay. 
But once again, I have to ask, like, if I'm going to buy the building, what, am, am I not going to take the old name off of it? Yeah. Okay, well, they didn't do that. Yeah, well, they didn't do that. So th- there's an old standard oil building still standing down there, and it's got a whole bunch of uh, Greek gods and goddesses uh, built into into the architecture. And... Um, yeah, just coincidentally, it's a couple, it's a block like a block away from the Federal Reserve Building. I guess you gotta keep the money close. Oh yeah. Um, one of the most interesting buildings in all of Los Angeles is the Lodge of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry on Wilshire Boulevard, and I, I noticed this. Uh, driving around, being a delivery driver in L.A. Uh, for a number of years, that when you get up to where this Masonic Lodge is, it, it's a huge, massive building. Um, and as you're making your way up to the uh, lodge, the streets are all free Masonic names. Like, there's Sphinx Street, there's Alexandria Street, uh, there's Plymouth. Uh, Franklin, um, <laughs> so there's, and not that every city doesn't have that, but I've never seen a Sphinx Street or an Alexandria Street, uh, especially in the vicinity of a, of a Masonic Lodge, so that's very unique to uh, L.A. Um, but yes, this massive structure that is no longer in use as a Masonic Lodge, uh, it's this huge stone building, apparently the uh, stone was brought over from Italy for it. And uh, today, as of 2014, it is a museum. And it was it was made so by the, the Marciano brothers, which the Marciano brothers uh, are famous for creating guests fashion. Okay. The chain stores. Yeah, the the, the store. yeah the stuff the fashion stuff for uh for uh, women and later men I guess wear that stuff too I don't know. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, it, a long time ago I guess uh, about twenty some odd years ago it stopped being. Um, it stopped being a uh, Masonic Lodge, and it was out of commission. Uh, but it's a massive structure, and like I said, there are uh, there are giant statues all around the whole thing. Um, um, very tall statue of Albert Pike, uh, Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Uh, not Isis, the terror group. Isis, the Egyptian god. Um, George Washington is on it. George Washington. There's a big Babylonian mosaic. <laughs> oh, of course. Why wouldn't there be? Yes. Uh, you know, so um, I guess it's a temple. It's not really a lodge. It's a Masonic temple, technically speaking. I, I never I never understand the difference. I'm, I'm not hip to what the difference between the temple and the lodge is. So, um, uh, But it was designed by Millard O. Sheets. And uh, we will talk about Mr. Sheets in the next segment as well. He was uh, 
very prominent. But here is an interesting thing, okay? This building has been used by the Los Angeles Police Department for funerals and other events, including special weapons and tactics team exercise in 1992. Also in 1992, the National Guard troops deployed during and after the L.A. riots made the temple a temporary barracks with the cooperation of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes. Um, also, the, I, I want just to put it into pop cultural reference. If you watch that, there was a movie. Man, I wish I could remember the name of that movie. If you could look this up, Chris, it's there. There was a movie in like the mid two thousands with Bob Dylan and John Goodman and. Uh, Jeff Bridges, it's not the Big Lebowski. Um, it had Bob Dylan in it, and I'm trying to think um, what the name of that movie was. But uh, that that building is in that movie, and Mass it's like and a anonymous. Mass and Anonymous. That's right. In that movie, they use they use that building. They use the uh, the Masonic Temple as a government building. So um, so that's that's a pop culture reference there. And uh, it's got these, the other thing I'll mention is it's got the, it it does look like a government building or or maybe even a bank, uh, which that's where Millard O. Sheets will uh, come into play in the next segment. Um, But it, it would pass itself off as a government building considering around the whole perimeter it has these giant eagles like these very official-looking eagles, which could either be, um, they could either be uh, United States government-looking eagles, or they could be a very fascistic, you know, Nazi-esque, uh, Italian-looking eagle as well. So, yeah, which, 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 what really means is it's a Freemasonic eagle used by the governments. <laughs> the uh, double-headed eagle. That's right. So if you go uh, down to the city of Long Beach, which is just south of Los Angeles, and you go to the campus of CSULB, which is Cal State University, Long Beach, you will find the arena that the basketball team plays on. It's, uh, the team is called the 49ers. And that arena is called the Pyramid. The Walter Pyramid. The Walter Pyramid. Now, interestingly enough, the Walter family was the ones who took over Levi Strauss and Company, which we'll talk about Levi Strauss in the next segment as well. Uh, but yes, the Walter Pyramid. And how, how tall is it, Chris? Does it say? It's like 300 feet tall or something? Uh, let me go to the Wikipedia entry. Uh... I, th- I think it's 345 feet. Yeah. And oh, the perimeter and is 345 feet. Oh, the perimeter is. Okay. But yeah, it's, it's, it's big. And it's it sticks out like a, side. yeah, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Like if you're driving down the freeway, 
the 405 freeway and you look off, you know, if you're heading north, uh, north and you look off to the left-hand side, it looks like little, old, you know, East Long Beach there where it meets, where it meets Lakewood. And then in the middle of everything is this giant dark blue pyramid. <laughs> hmm, yeah. It's pretty crazy. Looming over everything, so it's it's very weird looking, and I think it was built in the 1990s at some point, and uh, yeah, very strange looking, very out of place. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, I remember from re- reading about it is that there are only two other perfect pyramids in the Western, what they call a pure, perfect pyramid, in on the um. Uh, in the West, and that is the, there's a, uh, there's an arena in Memphis called the Pyramid. Yeah, I've and seen that. Now it's yeah. a uh, Bass Pro Shop. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's hilarious. And then the Luxor Pyramid in Nevada. Yeah, this is a, it's a mathematically true pyramid. Yeah. Whatever that means. I think it means it's the same on all sides. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So I guess the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is not a true pyramid. Um, Which I've been to that in Cleveland. It's like a big glass thing, but... um, Anyways, uh, moving on, stay, we'll stay in the South Bay there. And um, the city of El Segundo is a very interesting city. Um, that is where LAX is located. And virtually everything you could possibly think of that has to do with the military-industrial complex, except for Halliburton, is located in the city of El Segundo. And Chris and I have touched on this before about how there is virtually no competition. There's no real competition amongst any of these entities um, because they all build their buildings on the same street as each other. Uh, yeah. And this right. seems to be the case no matter where you go when it comes to these entities. It's like every city these things exist in, they all build their... In, you know, I mean, if you were really trying, I mean, if Raytheon was really in competition with Boeing and Northrop Grumman, uh, wouldn't you want to build it far away so they couldn't, like, have the opportunity to maybe steal your secrets? Right. <laughs> yeah, you think. Yeah, but no, everybody decided to build in El Segundo. And, of course, you know, it's Northrop Grumman, that's where, uh, you know, uh, Jack Northrop right there at at that facility, which still still there today, uh, you know, came up with the first you know high speed plane and all that stuff, allegedly. And so you got Northrop Grumman, you got Boeing, you got uh, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, and they're all down there. Um, as well as Chevron is down there, and all the oil companies. And it's interesting too if you go into Manhattan Beach. All of these, a lot of the street names are of the robber barons. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you go down there, you have Aldrich Street, you have Harriman Street, you have uh, Harkness, you have Carnegie and Rockefeller. 
And the streets are all named after those. And that whole area, I mean, you look at old pictures of the beaches in Southern California back in the 1900s, um, even up into the 60s, it's just oil derricks all over the place. Wow, yeah. And so oil was being pumped, you know, out regularly. And it's interesting, if you look at the history of Chevron, of what Chevron was, and Chevron is originally... Um, put uh, you know like Pacific Oil Company or something like that. I I, I used to know that uh, history pretty well, um, but you know it was eventually taken over by Standard Oil, as everything was, and um, you know became big, became a pretty big deal. And so you drive around down there um, amongst some of the Exxon Mobil oil fields that are in Torrance, and you'll actually see us. You'll actually see streets called Standard Way or Rockefeller Street and that type of stuff. So. Um, the homage is always paid to uh, the the original owners and the current owners, even though you can probably go read uh, Wikipedia and see who the fake owners of Chevron are. Wow. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, you've got the uh, military industrial complex. You, of course, got Rand Corporation in Santa Monica down there by the beach as well. Um, and, and another interesting thing, uh, about El Segundo is there's the, there's this complex. It's, it's got these three big high rise buildings right there on PCH and, uh, like Imperial or something like that. Maybe it's aviation. I can't remember, uh, where, and it's got a big, uh, pyramid in the middle of it, like in the courtyard and, these three buildings, it's uh, NEC, which the uh, that's the uh, computer company, is one of the buildings. The other building is Oracle. And the other building is ING, which is the Royal, Ho- the Royal House of Orange uh, official bank of, of Holland. Uh-huh. And they're directly across the street from Chevron. And they're around the corner from Raytheon and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and everything. And then another element of the military-industrial complex that gets overlooked, which is right in smack dab in the middle of all of them, which I think is very interesting. And one day as I was making a delivery to Raytheon, I was thinking about it. I'm all, this makes total sense that this is right here. And that is the Mattel Corporation. Mattel Toys? Yes. And so I was thinking about it one day, and I was just like, this makes total sense. I'm all, these are the people who make all of the, all of the uh, propagandistic toys for all the children to play with. Yeah, right there amongst all the mother industries. Yeah, I remember yeah. that as a kid, the Mattel factory. I don't know exactly where the factory is, but I remember seeing that as a kid when I was living in L.A., yeah, it's a big, big, big high-rise building right down there. And um, and then, you know, Pasadena, the city of Pasadena in and of itself is like one giant, you know, military uh, biotech industrial complex in and of itself. You have Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is, if you know the history of John of Jack Parsons, uh, 
it's built in a place called Diablo Canyon, which is devil in Spanish. So he's actually he's a Crowleyan Satanist, and he builds Jet Propulsion Laboratory out in the middle of Devil's Canyon. Um, and then uh, Caltech is, of course, there. And if anybody wants to read a definitive history of what Caltech is originally, there's a book called The Molecular Vision of Life, and it's by a lady named Lily Kay. It's a pretty expensive book, um, unless they've reprinted it or something, and it's kind of hard to find. And the only way I got to read it is by checking it out from the library. Um, but I've never seen it like under fifty dollars on on Amazon. And there might be PDFs floating floating around out there of it. But a very interesting book. Um, like I said, it's the history of Caltech at Pasadena, and Caltech literally was came into existence for the purpose of eugenics and social control and for bioengineering research. Mm, yeah. And it was completely funded into existence by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. And so, yeah, that's what, that's what that entire book is about. And there's even this whole chapter called social control and saying that that was the, that was the purpose of a lot of the research there. So, um, interesting stuff there. And then if you drive around Pasadena, you just see little things here and there all over the place where it's like, you know, these, you know, uh, you know, you'll see, uh, little businesses that will be, you know, like biotech, you know, or, uh, space, space, uh, corp or something like that. You know, there's all these little businesses all over the place that are, are, uh, you know, subsidized by that industry doing whatever it is that they do. And, um, so yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting area. That's for sure. And I think as far as, uh, this part goes, I think the last thing I'll mention is the Occidental Petroleum Corporation. And if you look up Occidental Petroleum, and it, it's located, um, it's located on the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and uh, Westwood Boulevard. And Occidental Petroleum is was owned by uh, a man by the name of Armand Hammer, and. Armand Hammer was kind of the George Soros of his day, of the of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he was kind of the guy you would go and attack as being a commie. Um, but he's like this mega billionaire commie, you know, like, like George Soros. Yeah. And he owned Occidental Petroleum, and um, there's a couple of books out about Armand Hammer, but I remember reading in this one book about him that he was talking about his dad and he said that his dad named him Armand Hammer because of the symbol of the Bolsheviks. Yeah. Like the, the arm and the hammer, right? Yeah. And that he named his brother Victor 
for, you know, Victor Hammer. So, like, victory. Uh-huh. And that his dad, that Armin Hammer's dad, was the bagman who transferred the money from the shifts to Lenin and Trotsky. So that famous story of how these shifts uh, in the Rothschilds funded the Bolshevik Revolution, um, it never tells exactly who the bagman is. But in this one book about Armin Hammer, uh, that's what Armin Hammer claims. Like, I, I don't know if that was true, but Armin Hammer claims that his dad was the actual bagman who took the money to uh, Trotsky there on the Canadian border. And uh, apparently when um, they caught Trotsky at the Canadian border, uh, Woodrow Wilson said, no, I'll go ahead, let him go. If, I re- if I'm remembering the story correctly. So, um, so Armin Hammer, uh, of course, a mega billionaire communist. And uh, today, you know who runs uh, the Occidental Petroleum Corporation, Chris? Who runs it today? Uh, no. Well, the we'll just say the proverbial um, the proverbial dog for Arm and Hammer in the Senate, who would do his master's bidding, was a senator. You may uh, have heard of him. Uh, he, you may have heard of his uh, son, but the original guy was named Albert Gore Senior. Okay, yeah. And and so Albert Gore Jr. sits on the board and runs basically the Gore family runs Occidental Petroleum. So Al Gore gets out there, he's a big environmentalist, talks a big game about climate change and all that stuff. Al Gore is an oil baron. Yeah. Yeah, I've talked about that before. I yeah, I forgot that is yeah, his dad actually runs Occidental Petroleum, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, and then you know naturally oil barons are also would be naturally affiliated with the hardcore communists right right exactly so and, and in in reverse of that of course hardcore communists would be capitalist oil billionaires yeah of course they would <laughs> and if you want, if you want any, um, if you want any further evidence how big of just corrupt sleaze bags these guys are, and that how they have no idea, they, they adhere to no ideology whatsoever, whether it be capitalist or communist, in the, you know, in the philosophical sense of the words. Look at the Love Canal scandal. Uh huh. Yeah, I kind of remember something about that. Yeah, it's just you go go look at the Love Canal scandal and see Arm and Hammer and Al Gore's involvement in all all the homes there, and um, just take a look at that and see how liberal and loving those guys are, and environment and uh, you know environmentally uh, conscious, of course. Yeah, so being the uh, exact 180 degree opposite of what they present themselves to be. And, Which is part, yeah, this part is, for the course. Uh, yeah, part for the course. It's just information out there that's not really hidden. 
anybody could look this stuff up and look at their family history and all that. But it, it, it just goes to show you, even though we live in the so-called information age, it doesn't really matter. People don't look, look, uh, these people over and they don't get an assessment of them and they just take them at face value and they don't, and they don't question what they tell them as long as they're telling something that they think they want to hear. And that's all there is to it. There's just, you know, and, and then, you know, here we are in 2015 with the internet and all the accessibility, all this information. And it doesn't seem to make really that much difference. Not very much. Um, While I uh, step off uh, for a minute, uh, could you uh, comment on some of the uh, information I presented here? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, funny that I was thinking about, uh, uh, it came up somewhere and I was thinking about that with Al Gore and how, like, someone like, like that particular person is maybe a little bit off subject, but, uh, you know, he could, he could, uh, sort of spearhead this, uh, global warming idea and sort of build a career off of it to where he's sort of the centerpiece spokesman for this idea and carbon trading and all that. And he could just publicly and unapologetically make billions of dollars off carbon trading and all that and still be seen by a large number of people as having legitimacy even though he's obviously uh blatantly profiteering off of it and uh yeah but then on the other hand the the same groups of people will if they they are ready ready to point out that if uh, oh yeah then uh, if you're climate denialist then you must be paid off by the oil companies and so they see that as you know the it, money being an influencer of opinion when it's counter to their opinion but when it's pro their opinion you can have this total over the top profiteering literally taxing air and and the atmosphere and that is okay so it's just this you know how how the the current politics and all this stuff gets so far afield of anything that represents logic or reason or common sense or anything like that that you know it it, it doesn't even uh have any basis in reality it's all just just you know we so something gets presented to people people buy into it it gets repeated over and over and often and frequently and through different uh venues and different uh uh media outlets and then it just magically materializes into some sort of reality and people accept it and they don't question it and they don't look at the people who are pushing it and maybe questioning their motives. It's just, yeah, it's just amazing. And then we have all this access to this, all this information and yeah, people don't, it doesn't seem to phase them. You know, they could 
you have somebody, a representative that's just brazenly hypocritical and then, op, you know, like we're talking about the opposite of what they purport themselves to be, but yet uh, they are seen as credible and their words have validity. And uh, it, yeah, it just, uh, it's just amazing how that, that, that goes on in the modern day. But uh, yeah, it just, uh, I think it demonstrates how, People in general are just so kind of out of touch and unaware with what really goes on. And, you know, I think it kind of plays into also, you know, what we're talking about and pointing out here with these different structures that are in your downtown areas and they're all over the place. Uh, some other buildings came to mind while you're talking about this is the city bank building in uh, Atlanta. It's, it's a pyramid and a obelisk on the top. And uh, also noticed one time I was, uh, when I was in Atlanta years ago. I, it, so I, I was on a bus and we were coming in there at, at, in the evening time and the, so the skyline's sort of lit up and I'm sort of checking it out. And then it's like, wow, this is really, uh, occultic. I mean, not only was the city bank building, uh, fashioned after a pyramid and ziggurats so that they were all over the downtown area. And, uh, yeah, it was like a theme. And then Atlanta invokes Atlantis and the kind of uh, those kind of concepts. And then, you know, esoteric or occultic. And, uh, yeah, that's a very uh, occultic downtown. I mean, I think that that whole downtown is is really uh, occultic looking. It's really uh, pretty creepy looking to me. I was like, struck by it. And I, I wasn't aware of it but going into it and then it's just something that jumped out at me right away going into that city. And, uh, yeah, that, that is, uh, overlooked by I mean, most people cause they don't, uh, care to know about, Oh yeah. Or have any curiosity about, you know, you know, why is it, you know, ah, why is all this stuff Egyptian or what are these Freemasons and why are their buildings so prominent? in my downtown and then uh there's hardly a mention of what they're about and what they do you know they had a pancake breakfast one time but that you know that's pretty much it that's what they do that so they need these elaborate what is it imported marble from italy and and but what you know all they're about is that yeah they'll have a pancake breakfast and they'll uh yeah uh and have a charity where they have eyeglasses for children or something like that. But that, you know, other than that, they're not, they're just a do good organization, but yeah, they import marble from Italy to make their elaborate, extravagant temples, uh, spare no expense, you know, represented in one of the most high rent areas in the country. And, uh, taking up several city blocks with a huge, enormous structure. And then nowadays they don't even use, but I guess they still own and control it. So, I mean, that would speak to of an organization that had some degree of wealth, I would think, or, you know, probably maybe into a little bit more than a 
spattering of uh, children's hospitals around the world and, you know, some pancake breakfasts and stuff. And, but, you know, no, it doesn't stoke that many people's curiosity enough for them to look further into it. It's just kind of taken, taken in with the scenery and just accepted. And yeah, never mind too, that your cops are Freemasons. And, uh, it's like that video I put on Hoaxbusters call, uh, YouTube, did you com? You go there, YouTube link at the top where I went down to, to the uh, park down here when they were having a meet and greet with the cops and the Masons had a booth set up in the middle and they were taking children's fingerprints and uh, yeah, some stuff you can read about or look into where your, your local police and your uh, police in general across the country are uh, generally speaking heavily involved in Freemasonry. Many of them maybe even most of them, I don't know, are Freemasons. And there's probably a lot of cities where it's sort of even a prerequisite to being a police is that you're a Freemason. And uh, and then there's also the Fraternal Order of Police, which is sort of a uh, offshoot of Freemasonry. And they have the same trappings and the same sort of regalia as Freemasons. And then, yeah, you're Freemasonic lodges are prominently displayed in any given downtown. And, uh, but, you know, it's no big deal. You know, go to the pancake breakfast, enjoy some pancakes, and they're going to, it's going to be a fundraising. And then you have to buy some eyeglasses for some kids. And that's, that's pretty much all, all it's about. Right, John? That's it. It's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty funny when you think about it. I mean, it's not, but... Oh, what are you going to do? I know that... Um, that when it comes to these structures, that most people don't notice them. They don't know. They weren't taught. Like myself, I mean, I've grown up my whole life with all of this stuff all around me, and it's only been within the past, you know, 15 years that... I've even started to notice any of this stuff, you know? So it's, and I do take notice of it now. Like, like I was saying about El Segundo, it's like, I take notice of when you see an area and it's heavily dominated by one particular like industry, you know? And, and like, like I was saying in, in, in the last segment was, that you'll see this, you'll see remnants of this all over uh, Southern California. You can actually see how the area, you know, progressed, progressed, I say that in quotation marks, um, by way of abundance and, um, uh, you know, how uh, it was economically based. Because I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I had three grandfathers. And um, two of them lived in Orange County, and both of them worked uh, in one capacity or another for the military-industrial complex without actually working directly for the military-industrial complex. Uh So my one grandfather worked for an engineering company that literally just made, like, its sole proprietor was Boeing. Yeah. 
and that's all they did is made made you know little do do hickeys and tallywags for Boeing. And then my other my other grandfather, which I've mentioned before, working for worked for Rockwell, worked for Parker Hannifin, and actually worked on components for uh, space shuttles, including the Challenger space shuttle, which I've mentioned oh. before. Uh-huh. So, um, so living in Orange County and working in Orange County in any capacity. I mean, I used to work with a guy where over here at Burger, and he told he was telling me, you know, I mean, he's lived in he was about fifty something years old, you know, just a couple of years uh, older than uh, you, and he's worked at every single military industrial complex thing you could possibly imagine, just in the form of a machinist. Yeah. You know, he, t- he told me, oh, yeah, I used to work at Boeing. I used to work at Northrop Grumman. I used to work at Raytheon. And I worked at TRW. And I worked at all, you know, and he's, like, talking about all these uh, different things. And so business was booming. It's not booming anymore because it doesn't work. Uh, all of those things are virtually shadows of themselves. They don't even really even exist. And it's interesting, I think I've mentioned this on a previous call, but I wanted to make sure I put it in here. If you go to those facilities today, okay, just know this, the money is not going into those facilities. The money is going somewhere else because those facilities look like they haven't been updated since the 1970s. Uh-huh. And the, this is the area where all of that stuff started. I mean, yeah. this 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 is uh, where it was at. So, um, you know, when they're shipping off all of the industry to be made in China or wherever it is that they're making all the stuff now, um, they're not putting any of the money into anything over here. And so uh, I, I just remember the last time that I made a delivery to Boeing, I picked up one of the uh, employee magazines. And I was looking at all the stuff that's coming out, and every single thing in that magazine was all about drones. Mm, yeah. And so that's what it's all being directed towards now is, uh, as we were talking about in the in uh, the call that we did the other day, was unmanned uh, technology. And so... Um, so it's you know and and as uh, as I was pointing out in the last segment, you know a lot of the original ideas for the neighborhoods and the layout of how suburbia was going to be was that you lived in these neighborhoods that were close by to where you worked uh, that was the pushed original plan the original idea was that you were going to live and work all in the same area, but as the rug got pulled out from all of the different industries. They, um, you know, that created the afternoon commute. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and so, so yeah, that, that, that's what you uh, had. But, but um, one of the original um, neighborhoods that was created was Lakewood. 
California. We we spoke about Lakewood, and there is a great book I would recommend anybody it's on my reading list it's called Holy Land, and it is about the city of Lakewood and how um, suburbia, the idea of suburbia, really was started, and it all started with, um, you know. Uh, an idea for a neighborhood that was close to the McDonnell Douglas plant. So all of the workers could live right there in the vicinity of the McDonnell Douglas plant. Yeah. And yeah, it's and like so, yeah, these the, incubators for culture where you have a corporation will make this planned community and then uh, future communities that aren't necessarily associated with that corporation anymore spring out of that and become sort of the new normal. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the model of what we have with planned communities today and all the stuff you see, you know, I'm telling you, when, when I traveled across the country in the 90s, you didn't see all of these, uh, you didn't see a lot of this stuff with the gated community, with the prefab homes that you see that that have uh, proliferated since that time. But you saw a lot of that out here in California in the 80s and 90s. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, like if you go to Austin, Texas today, if you're going to, you know, ever go there to visit your buddy Alex Jones, um, <laughs> what you're going to find in these surrounding areas is a whole bunch of new suburbs all built in the hill country. And it looks like all of the houses that were all built in the hills out here in the 1980s. So those ideas are springing up from California. That They're tested out here and then say, oh, this is... It's a great idea. Now, now we'll move it on. Now we'll move it out to uh, Oklahoma. Yeah, uh, you know, I lived out in San Diego. That you know was, of course, well entrenched. You know, when I was living out there in the '90s, and uh, so yeah, it's a friend of mine I went and visit him in uh, I think it was Rancho Bernardo, maybe I'm not sure. It was one of these uh, communities that was, it was like these, uh, I don't want to say row houses, if that's the correct term, but it was uh, like a cookie cutter community where like every house was virtually identical with some like slight variation. And they were sort of these like uh, sort of a townhouse, but it was like a slash suburb looking uh, arrangement little bit different from the standard uh, suburban house and uh, I it just struck me as very odd like uh, I, I didn't uh, yeah I, I, I wasn't really I wasn't really hip on that man I was just I was just kind of irked by it but it was just so um, uh, just uniform and to to a really extreme degree. And another thing that stood out is that nobody had backyards. You had like a like a ten by ten little patch of grass in the back. If you call that a yard, I don't know what would be a yard, but yeah, that was typical of those houses. And they were pretty expensive. 
from what I understand, like they weren't cheap. And, uh, that, that was, uh, I guess considered sort of a upper, upper middle class community or something, something along that lines. And, um, yeah, it was it's very odd. And, uh, the, the uniformity of it like really stood out. And then, you know, the transition away from, uh, people spending any degree or any discernible degree of time outdoors, even in Southern California, you would think that people would be more inclined to have uh, more living space sort of in the outdoors, you know, which a lot of people do out there, but it seems like that that represents maybe a trend away from that where it's like, Oh, well, you know, yards are not, and you know, of course, California is always talking about issues with water and stuff like that. So uh, I guess it would make sense from that perspective. But then as far as the, the impact on people's like lifestyles, you know, it's like, you know, you, I guess you're expected to spend the majority of your time in the house, you know, and not outside or, you know, and I, didn't I think, I think people do that. I think people do that already. I really don't believe that uh, there's anybody who uh, a good majority of people, they're not really concerned with the outer facade of their house. They don't care how the house looks on the outside. They're not concerned about the yard. They would actually much, they'd probably rather live in a total asphalt concrete jungle so they won't have to upkeep the yard. And whatever the house looks like stylistically is, is pretty much irrelevant at this point, as long as uh, there's enough space to have the big screen TV and the futon. Yeah. Yeah. It and, was Rancho uh, Bernardo's is a upscale master planned community in the Northern Hills of San Diego. Master planned. Yes. Master planned. It's all part of the master plan. Um, yeah, so so if your house, I mean, it's this has been going on for such a long time. I mean, there's been critique of suburbia ever since it started, as far as the uniformity of it all. But um, even some of those original suburbs back in the you know 40s and 50s and 60s uh, had a lot more uh, you know deviated in styles of homes much more than the homes today. These homes that are getting built today, they, they every house is exactly the same across the board. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, so, I yeah. guess according to this, it got its guesswork, this sort of really got its start. These planned communities that are of the original models for these Apparently, was in the Soviet Union. Then came to California, yeah. and then came nationwide, United States. Yeah, they tested a lot of that out, definitely, uh, with the planned, the planned communities. And like I said, a lot of these guys, which we'll, we'll touch on some of them uh, in the next segment, um, a lot of these guys were very utopian. Some of these designers of these planned communities had had a lot of utopian ideas as to which as to how they wanted to structure and how they wanted to make things very convenient for people to live. And that darn convenience gets us every time. 
Oh, yeah. So, well, speaking of uh, convenience, we'll, um, we won't go to the convenience store, but uh, we'll talk about some people who actually started some businesses. And a lot of the stuff that you see in your homes and your banks and your stores and all of that type of stuff, uh, see where that actually came from. And some of those people uh, are from Southern California. So that's what we'll see in the next segment. All right. Sounds good. One, two, one, two, three. Hey, I'm California Blue. Well, I'm a-going to California where to sleep out every night. Well, I'm a-going to California where to sleep out every night. Oh, Lord, I'm leaving your good guy. Let's breeze through uh, a couple more names here. There's so many interesting people in the history of California, but not enough time to uh, get through them all, and uh, it's hard to choose which one. So I'm just going to pull some names out of the hat with kind of no um, with uh, no direction. Just read about some interesting people here. Christopher John Boyce and Andrew Dalton Lee. You ever heard of them, Chris? No, uh uh-uh. I'm sure you have. The biggest American spy scandal of the 1970s was nurtured in Palos Verdes, the former Sepulveda Ranch north of Long Beach, which became an aerospace gauge, an enclave of mindless affluence and moral amnesia. Boyce and Lee both grew up in privileged circumstances there, classmates at St. John Fisher Parochial School. From the roof of the school, they could look down and see Watts burning during the 1965 riots. After graduation from Palos Verdes High School, Lee, the adopted son of a wealthy doctor, found himself unprepared to earn a living as anything but a dope dealer. He was busted seven times during the 1970s and served a month, served a few months at the wayside honor rancho. Resuming his high life of crime after each interruption, Boyce, the son of a former FBI agent, enrolled at and dropped out of a series of local colleges. His main interest in life was falconry, which led him to enroll at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo for its proximity to a federal sanctuary for falcons. In 1974, through his father's contacts, he got a $140 a week job as a clerk at TRW, which soon cleared him to work on a project on a clandestine CIA project involving satellite surveillance. One night, while doing drugs together, Boyce and Lee came up with the idea of selling CIA secrets to the Soviets. Like everything else in their lives, treason was too easy. TRW security was ridiculously lax, enabling Boyce to take home with him as many secret documents as he could carry. Lee, who had drug contacts in Mexico, simply presented himself to the Soviet embassy there and offered a deal selling secrets as if they were so much to have as if they were so much hash. The two were too incompetent or perhaps simply too stoned to properly focus the mini-camera the Russians bought them. Lee, who seemed to have been motivated primarily by desire to play a big spending hotshot, even bragged to his friends about the deals going down in Mexico. 
Incredibly, this amateur espionage went on for two years, thoroughly compromising major U.S. spy networks until Lee was apprehended in Mexico entirely by accident in 1977. So uh, this would be the story of the falcon and the snowman. Okay, yeah. And uh, what we just heard there is the BS. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that all that all took place right right here in California. Let's see what else we've got here. You ever heard of James Kane? James Kane. James Mal James Malahan Kane, a former teacher and journalist from Maryland. Came, came to California during the 30s to write film scripts but found that the movie industry inspired him mostly with contempt. His first assignment, a remake of The Ten Commandments, he dismissed as a masterpiece of hokum. Instead, he began weaving the local suburban landscape into tightly constructed little novels about wishes that come true with a vengeance. All three of Kane's major works, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Double Indemnity, and Mildred Pierce use Glendale as a geographic synonym for the banality of the American dream. Mildred Pierce is a novel about a pride, about pride, respectively, a woman's overweening love for her daughter and the relative status of Glendale and Pasadena. And then it goes into the story of Mildred Pierce. Um, but uh, one thing uh, James Kane and I'm, I'm speaking from my own perspective. One thing James Kane was uh, pretty interestingly um, known for was his his books were very very risque for the time period and uh, were very dark. And it's kind of like at that particular time, there's not really anything else like that, and it focused on a kind of dark aspect of the human condition and. Um, uh, his all of, all of those books right there uh, have adultery and murder as the main theme, and so he was kind of focusing on something that wasn't totally prominent. It's like adultery and murder in today's society. I mean, you're talking about you know uh, every single television show on TV, right? Uh-huh. And at that time, uh, you know, someone reading a book like that might. Um, might blush at that particular time period. Um, so yeah, definitely a, a cultural changer. And a couple of years ago, uh, they made, they remade a they remade Mildred Pierce and did an HBO version of it. it's pretty good. I definitely recommend it, and I definitely recommend seeing the movie Double Indemnity, the original one. Okay. Um, which uh, is about a insurance salesman who cheats with a customer's wife and then they decide to kill her husband and get the double indemnity on the insurance. (laughs) Patrick Calhoun, the longest and most violent streetcar strike in the U.S. history took place in San Francisco in 1907. The strike and the striking union were both eventually broken by Calhoun, a grandson of John C. Calhoun, and an aristocrat of the buccaneer breed. Gertrude Atherton claimed that Calhoun provoked the strike in the first place. 
to distract attention from the municipal graft trials, which he was charged with making a $200,000 payoff for a 25-year streetcar franchise. Certainly Calhoun, who fought the last code duel in the South, was not lacking in bravado. During the strike, he drove around town in an open limousine, blatantly defying, quote, anarchic labor scum to touch him. And during his trial for bribery, he maintained an air of outraged innocence, despite his refusal to testify on grounds of self-incrimination. His United Railroad Company was also clearly implicated in violent attempts to silence Pert's prosecution witnesses. The jury deadlocked, and the indictments were eventually dismissed. But Calhoun was financially crippled by the ordeal. He was also unable to float a bond issue without producing the books that would convict him of bribery. So you don't hear about stuff like this when you uh, get the you know you get the California history. What do you get? You get you Cesar Chavez, and you know. You, you you watch PBS and you get you get to hear about uh you know when when uh you know the sixties happened in San Francisco and that's all you get about California history. Yeah. And see this type of stuff that 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 I'm reading about, this is the type of stuff that's still going on today. And I think that's one of the points I'm trying to make is, is this is a long history. Like, like take for instance here, uh, Harry Chandler. Harry Chandler built fortune on real estate cronyism, Yankee shrewdness, and the power of the press. He arrived in Los Angeles in 1883 with little money and poor health, but soon recouped strength, and solvency by farm work in the San Fernando Valley. Newspaper circulation routes were bought and sold in those days. And Chandler bought up enough of them to acquire bargaining power with the Los Angeles Times publisher, Harrison Gray Otis, who made the young go-getter his business manager in 1894. After the death of his first wife, Chandler married Otis's daughter, Marion, and minded the story why Otis went off to war in 1898. In the early years of the century, armed with insider knowledge about the Owens River Aqueduct, Chandler put together his first syndicate of cronies to buy up the San Fernando Valley land, which would appreciate fabulously with the provision of water and other public utilities at taxpayers' expense. The profits from this venture financed another Chandler syndicate operation, the 300,000-acre Tihon Ranch, called the Right-of-Way Ranch because the State Highway Commission selected it over a more economical and populous route for Interstate 5. By the 1930s, Chandler was a land baron with 2 million acres, including a large piece of Baja, California, and the Santa Anita Ranch, Lucky Baldwin's showplace. He also acquired diverse manufacturing, transportation, tourists, and other interests, usually through syndicates or dummy corporations, and served on some 50 board of directors. Like Otis, who he succeeded in 1917 as publisher of the LA Times, Chandler was aggressively Republican and anti-labor. Citing the threat of international Bolshevism, he supported corrupt municipal governments during the interwar period to exchange for a police red squad to put down strikes and, investigative, and investigate subversives. 
The depression was only psychological, according to Chandler, who thought economist Maynard Keynes was a pinko, which that's true. Um, and it goes on, but I won't read anymore. But yeah, the Chandlers were the Rockefellers of Los Angeles, basically. At one time. This is an interesting thing. Cristo. Cristo Java Chef. In 1976, a Bulgarian-born neo-Dadist arrived in Northern California proposing to construct a perfectly useless 24-mile fence from Petaluma to the sea. Cristo, who started by wrapping cans, cars, buildings, and then whole landscapes in white canvas, was the veteran of a similar fence project called the Valley Curtain in Colorado. His running fence would cost $2 million dollars to be provided by the artist. It would take six months to erect, and after two weeks of display, it would vanish completely. All materials going to the 59 ranchers whose land would be traversed. After 17 hearings in Sonoma and Marin counties, three appeals to the state Supreme Court, application to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and completion of a 265-page environmental impact report, he won permission to launch his experiment in the aesthetics of transience. The result proved a rare community experience for the people of Sonoma and Marin counties who moved from hostility and skepticism to support of the offbeat artist. So what if it was totally, so what if it was a totally useless fence? It became our fence, a shimmering vapor trail stretching from the rolling hills into the Pacific sunset, redefining relations between people and space art and society, dream and reality. Bizarre. Artificial fences. All right. Take some mouse out of the woodwork here. Mm. Angela Davis. Angela Yvonne Davis, when she first arrived in San Diego in 1967 to earn a graduate philosophy degree under Herbert Marcuse, she used to drive around searching for causes. Born in Alabama, educated in an Eastern establishment school, and fresh from a two-year study in Germany, she was eager to put her radical activist theory into practice. She scoured the dorms for black students to protest against radical discrimination at the local Navy base. But San Diego was thoroughly conservative. The real action was farther north in L.A. And Davis tried out various organizations, including the Black Panthers, before joining the Shea Lumumba Club, the black cell of the Communist Party in L.A. in 1968. She became her own cause celeb when Governor Reagan and the regents of the University of California tried to prevent her as a communist from teaching at UCLA, citing a McCarthy-era clause later declared unconstitutional by the courts. Then in February of 1970, she saw on the front page of the Los Angeles Times a photograph of Soledad 
brother George Jackson chained and shackled. She went to visit, visit him in God, which reminded her of the South, and lectured in his behalf. In August 1970, indicated implicated in a shootout at the Marion County Courthouse, which left four dead, she went underground, a fugitive slave for, of the Black Power movement. Captured a few months later, she spent a year in jail awaiting trial before she was allowed free on bail, pledged by a white farmer in Fresno County. Acquitted of murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy charges, in June 1972, she was launched onto the international radical circuit. Total operative. Got any comments on any uh, these people I've talked about so far? Oh, uh, no. Let's go to Thomas Lake Harris. You ever heard of Thomas Lake Harris? Uh, No, I haven't heard of that person. Thomas Lake Harris. In 1875, guided by an inner vision of great trees and vast oceans, Harris moved his Brotherhood of New Life from upstate New York to a new Eden in the West. Located two miles north of Santa Rosa, Fountain Grove was variously considered to be proprietors for gold mining, winemaking, and for the Brotherhood's theosocialistic sexual mysticism. The English-born Harris was a theological vagabond, a former Swedenborgian who broke away to find his own total community based on Spartan lifestyle. Oh, I'm sorry, based on Spartan lifestyle, communication with the dead, and a form of sexual hocus-pocus featuring bridal play with angels. Eventually encompassing 700 acres, Fountain Grove showed early promise as a vineyard, the sect considered wine a vehicle of the quickening influence. But the colony was soon rocked by internal schism and public scandal. Harris's most eminent devotees, a member of the British Parliament, and his titled mother broke away and filed suit for the return of funds donated to the community. And in 1891, a, def- a defector named Alzire Chevalier began to give lectures on Harrisism. Secrets of the Sonoma Eden Unveiled, charging the pivotal man with autocracy and sexual license. Harris and most of his followers decamped in 1892, leaving Fountain Grove to the remaining members of the sect, the vineyards and Harris's house described by writer Idawal Jones as originally resembling a mansion Louisa May Alcott might have lived in, eventually fell into disuse, another of God's ghost towns. Burnett Haskell. In 1885, a group of radicals filed land claims to establish a utopian community on the fringes of what is now Sequoia National Park. They were a motley crew, as historian Robert Hine points out, dress reformers, phonetic spelling advocates, 
devotes of uncooked food under the leadership of Haskell, himself a problematic figure. Born of a pioneer family, he attended the University of California, but did not graduate, was admitted to the bar, but did not practice law. Given a labor organ to publish, he became a anarcho an anarcho-socialist and founded the International Working Men's Association, a secretive group advocating the use of dynamite. One recommended target, the Hall of Records, in order to confuse land titles. It always seemed possible that Haskell was an agent provocateur, for he would egg others on, then drop out. He was argumentative and unreliable, erratic and unstable, a genius. His friends claimed the utopian Calway colony, named for a nearby river, was itself founded on characteristic misapprehension. Although the law prohibited commercial timber operations, the idealistic colonists figured they could still harvest timber cooperatively. Up, up to 300 of them at a time found refuge at Kewa from the cold, competitive world. Pictures of the colony show tiny people against the background of giant trees, which they named after radical heroes. The end of Kawa came in 1890 when Congress decreed the establishment of the National Park, refusing to compensate the colony even for such improvements as their road, long the only access to the area. Kawa's Karl Marx tree was renamed for General Sherman, and Haskell spent his last years poor and friendless. This is some bizarre stuff, man. I'll only read a couple more here and then uh, we'll close it up. But you got all sorts of uh, big, you know, Huntington Beach is named after the Huntington family, yeah. uh, which was the Southern Pacific Railroad, uh, along with, you know, Stanford University is named after Leland Stanford and all of those. The city of Irvine is named after the Irvine family, uh, which Irvine was the largest piece of Southern California land to serve to survive essentially intact from the Spanish era to the Second World War, and that was the Irvine Ranch owned by James Irvine Sr. And so, yeah, you've got a lot of rich people owning a lot of land, including a family that's still around today. Um, which right outside of the Irvine Ranch, there was a family called uh, the Segerstrom family. And uh, there is one of the, at one time, one of the biggest malls in the uh, in the state and maybe even in the country uh, was is a mall right, right there in a Costa Mesa called South Coast Plaza. And um, it literally was the Segerstrom family who... Um, who uh, gave their land to, for that to be built on. And I don't know if I told this story uh, before, um, but I used to know a girl who worked for the Seagerstrom's. And, yeah, I used to know this girl who worked for the Seagerstrom's. And, and so one day I was telling her boyfriend about, you know, we were talking about the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. And <laughs> she's sitting there listening to what we're saying. She's all, are you talking about like the Rothschild, the bankers? And I said, yeah. 
It's like, oh, yeah, the Seagerstroms want to do business with them. I'm all, what? And she's all, yeah, she's all, they're, they're talking about about getting, you know, doing business with the Rothschilds. I'm all, really, that's that's uh, very interesting. One of the most powerful in Orange County wants to do business with the Rothschild banking family. And she was adamant, because I, I, kept, I kept saying, I'm all, are you sure, I'm all, are you sure we're talking about the same family here? She's all, yeah, absolutely, so we're... We're talking about the Rothschilds, the, the bankers. Uh, Abbott Kinney. You know who Abbott Kinney was? Nope. Only scattered remnants remain today of the dream of Kinney, a modern Ozymandias who brought the canals of Venice to the Southern California coast, born in New Jersey of good New England lineage. He studied in Europe before making his fortune as a cigarette manufacturer, traveling the world in pursuit of health. He settled in near, he settled near Sierra Madre in the San Gabriel Valley in 1880. There Helen Hunt Jackson found him master of an improbable snow white hillside called Kiniloa, staffed by Chinese servants and an army of gopher-hunting cats. Jackson, who later wrote a book called The Hunter Cats of Kiniloa, drew on Kinney's knowledge of local Indian lore in her 1883 investigation of the missions of the Indians. A universal intellect, Kinney uh, wrote a book on sociology, metaphysics, child-rearing, and free trade, as well as a descriptive treatise on the beneficial properties of Eucalyptus. Having concluded that for men of Anglo-Saxon or Teutonic descent, the climate of the foothills is used up in the course of three or four summers, he purchased coastal land near present-day Santa Monica. He apparently considered turning Santa Monica Canyon into the Knob Hill of L.A. and lined the streets of the Palisade with with eucalyptus but eventually decided to bypass the bluffs in favor of the sand dunes. Kinney's approach to land development was to combine art with utility, history with hygiene. To drain the marshy strips of the coastline just below Santa Monica, he created a 15-mile network of canals, suggestive of the Italian Lagoon City. For culture, he constructed an auditorium at the foot of the pier and booked Sarah Bernhardt to appear in Camille. But visitors to Venice, California, preferred the beach to the lecture hall. Sideshows replaced art on the pier, and new residents ignored the Doge's injunction to build in the Venetian style. Some of the stagnant canals were, were filled during the 1930s, but others survived lying with the usual jumble of South, Southern California styles of architecture. Kinney's Ranch in the San Gabriel Valley is now an expensive tract. Yeah, if you go down to Venice Beach, and the reason Venice Beach is called Venice Beach is because he tried, he tried to build Venice, and there's actually still areas uh, that are down there today where they've got canals and they have gondola rides. Jiddu Krishnamurti. 
According to Theosophist doctrine, California was to be the cradle of a new civilization, a special province of the new world teacher. In 1909, sect leader Annie Besant discovered the later or discovered the latter in the person of a young Eastern Indian boy, supposedly the reincarnation of the spiritualist Helena Blavatsky, who died a few years before his birth. Krishna and his brother Nitya were taken to Britain and raised on the model of proper young Englishmen. They had their teeth straightened, learned to play croquet and golf, and acquired upper-crust accents and haberdashery, including gray Homburgs and the Malacca walking sticks. The world teacher became a worldly and discontented young man, embarrassed to be considered the living flame by his friends. The turning point of his life came during the 1922 visit to Ojai, California, selected by Mrs. Besant for its rich occult influences. There, Krishna had an out-of-body experience that refocused his life on spiritual matters. Seeking treatment for the tuberculosis of which Nita eventually died in Ojai, the brothers also visited Hollywood doctors of spiritualistic persuasion who prescribed the Abrams Oscilloclast. Krishna returned to Ojai every spring, accompanied in 1926 by Mrs. Besant, who acquired several hundred acres there. In 1928, he made his first U.S. public appearance at the Hollywood Bowl before a rapt audience of 16,000. But the years of preparation were aborted in 1929 when Krishna rejected the role of world teacher and repudiated, organization, or repudiated organized religion, proclaiming truth as pathless land. Liberally supported by aristocratic patrons, he continued to lecture, travel, and write as an independent spiritual force, maintaining a base in Ojai where he coexisted with the country club set. Mrs. Besant's successor, she died in 1933 at the Happy Valley School, and even a few resident Rosa, and even a few resident Rosicrucians. Christians' non-disciples no longer permitted to worship him, might, if they really wished, present him with a Lincoln convertible or Mercedes-Benz rival guru Alan Watts used to say with affectionate envy. And it's got this picture of uh, Krishnamurti, and it says, Happiness Through Liberation, Tuesday, May 15th, 8.30 p.m. at the Hollywood Bowl. One of the lesser-known um, guys, and I'll read about him and one more person, because I think I've belabored the point here, that California is... Uh, a place where people tend to uh, flock for all sorts of occult activity and um, and um, chicanery. Par Param Hansa Yogananda. Okay. Inspired by a vision of himself karmically linked to Christopher Columbus, who saw India but found America, Yogananda, Yogananda left India for America in 1920. Eventually, he found his way to Mount Washington in Los Angeles, which I used to live at the base of, where he founded his Self-Realization Fellowship, based on the mental and physical discipline of yoga. The long-haired guru with his 
with his Betafix smile, acquired a following of several hundred thousand disciples in some prime Southern California real estate. A World Brotherhood colony was founded near Encinitas on a bluff dramatically overlooking the Pacific. The gift of a businessman who is depicted meditating in a loincloth in Yogananda's memoirs. His name was James Lynn, and he succeeded Yogananda briefly as SRF president. The Encinitas facility bears a family resemblance to the Tijuana Palace. But the SRF Lake Shrine in Pacific Palisades is more eclectic, featuring a Dutch windmill and a memorial to Gandhi and a Mississippi houseboat on which the yoga lived for a time. There was also a SRF center in Hollywood, which is, uh, in, interestingly enough, right across the street from uh, the, science, the Church of Scientology, a retreat in the Mojave Desert, and other churches in Southern California, which there's also one in Fullerton, where I work. Yogananda, who in life was able to slow the pulse in one wrist alone, dropped dead at the midst of the Biltmore Hotel banquet for the Indian ambassador to the U.S. His disciples announced that the guru had made a conscious exit from his body, which was so devoid of impurities that it showed no sign of decay three weeks after death. This was confirmed by the director of Forest Lawn, where Yogananda was embalmed. Yeah, I remember that place out there, near Encinitas. Yeah. There's a beach called Swami's, too. I'm sure it has something to do with that. Oh, yeah, definitely. <coughs> oh. Yeah, uh... I think... We always hear that the West Coast is Eastern influences and the East Coast is more European influences, but okay, how did it end up where the West Coast is has all this uh, Eastern mysticism and all this stuff that's uh, really pushed? I mean, is that something that's just a natural result of it uh, being on the Pacific where you know, uh, Asian immigrants or something have uh, created those circumstances, or is that something that's, that's completely artificially created? I think it's artificially created. And the one person I want to end with here, like I said, there's so many people I could I could go over and I could spend hours talking about this stuff. I, I find it really fascinating. Um, but I'm sure there's only a small majority of people who actually find this fascinating. The one person who came out of California who has had the biggest impact worldwide, culturally speaking, and um, even sociologically speaking, is Levi Strauss. <laughs> Closeness breeds familiarity, so it is not inappropriate that the West's most popular pants, snug fit Levi's, should be known by the first name of the San Francisco merchant who first brought them to the world. Jeans by the way, are named for the Italian port where Genoese cloth was first made. Strauss, who was a Bavarian-born Jew, a former successful dry goods merchant in Gold Rush, San Francisco, one of, whom, one of the customers to whom he sold cloth was a struggling tailor in Reno, Jacob Davis, who first conceived of riveting the pockets and seams of his trim-fitting work pants to keep them from splitting. Davis made a deal with Strauss to patent 
mass produce and distribute his pants, which soon became a standard item among miners, lumberjacks, and cowboys throughout the West. Strauss died in 1902, a bachelor, leaving his end of the business to four nephews, surnamed Stern, or surnamed Stern. Davis was succeeded in the production end after the earthquake by his son Simon, who added overalls to the line and set up a mini factory at the 1915 exposition to help popularize the Levi Strauss line. Over the years, the basic Levi was improved with metal buttons, orange stitching, a leather label, and a red pocket tab. Under the leadership of Stern's son-in-law, Walter Haas, and his sons, the company broke through the regional market, skyrocketing after World War II into the largest clothing manufacturer in world history. Its product, a worldwide sociological phenomenon. And that's interesting too, because the the genes the the genes really do come out of Southern California. Because after World War II, a lot of the um, a lot of the workers uh, who worked in the factories wore jeans, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, war manufacturing plants were in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And so it became fashionable um, just like that. But also, interestingly enough, it was... Um, did you, are you aware of the uh, communist connection to uh, blue jeans? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that would be. Yeah. Yeah, see, see, blue jeans um, in the com- in uh, in red China are not gender specific. It's something that a man or a female can both wear. And so um, that's an interesting thing as to how popular uh, blue jeans became and are. It's 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 uh, something that. Uh, I, I think they even talked about it, in, and I, I wish I had a reference uh, with me with me here, but I don't. But yeah, that's something that uh, that they pushed in Red China for males and females to wear uh, blue jeans because uh, that way it was uh, not you, you cannot define gender. It did away with the idea of gender because uh, it was clothing that was undefined, and so it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, that, uh, being, a being something that was touched on, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought the story was that it was miners, uh, panning for gold and that became popular with the miners. And then, uh, that's how it got, uh, popularized with with gold miners and associated with the gold rush and and all of that that's i guess the official story right yeah even if you look at some of uh some of the history of levi strauss they even say that that's not really true um because like i just said there was a there was one you know the the jacob davis guy he was making those particular types of pants for gold miners. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't until after the gold rush that 
teens even got popular with, you know, with cowboys, those type of things. So it was our, you know, uh, you know, yes, of course you can go back and see pictures of miners wearing uh, denim and things like that. But as far as becoming a worldwide phenomenon or something, it was already something that, uh, it was something that that became uh, more in vogue after the gold rush. Mm, okay. And and uh, so it, I, I think I read something. It might even have been on the Levi's uh, website that the miners on the jeans, the miners are on the jeans are are some were something that were used to sell them after the fact, like, you know, after the gold rush, it was, it was like, they put that on their jeans to, as a selling technique, like, you know, tough enough for miners, but, you know, ready to be worn by the average person. Yeah. Yeah. Just marketing, uh, marketing stuff. Yeah. But once again, another huge fashion fad trend that still exists to this day uh, coming out of California, and perhaps one of the biggest uh, fashion fad trends ever. I would have to say, yeah. Even to this day, it's like jeans are the probably most commonly worn clothing item amongst uh, people in general. It's like a universal thing. It's like we're yeah, we're totally worldwide now. Blue jeans. I mean, blue jeans are accepted in, I mean, if you've got on, I mean, they make, you know, you know, they make like $500,000 pair of jeans now. $500,000, you say? No, I say like 500000 500 to $1,000 pairs of jeans, like, you know, by high-end fashion designers. Oh, right, yeah. And you're able to go into the highest-end restaurant wearing a pair of, you know, uh, uh, high-end jeans, whereas in another time period, you wouldn't even be able to go into a restaurant if, if you weren't wearing a suit. Right, yeah. But but our society and culture has changed so much that you do have a, a more uh, lax approach to dress codes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the... Uh... I don't know if it's a reference to the Blue Blue Lodge of Masonry. I've heard that said. Oh, Blue Jeans? Mm-hmm. Why are they blue of all colors? You know, but... I don't know. But, it, you know, with, with the stuff that we always find out as being the real reason for something, like uh-huh. like we just like we just talked about... We, you know, we just talked about how um, how the home savings and loans thing. Which, by the way, I want to mention this: there are still home savings and loan uh, banking uh, structures all over California. Mm-hmm. They've just got a Chase Bank logo on them now, so you can actually see those old banks that were designed to look like Masonic lodges all over California. It's just the home savings alone got bought out by like Washington Mutual who got bought out by Chase Bank. So you can still see all those structures everywhere, but you see, you see what we just learned here. 
is that they actually they actually consciously designed banks to look like Masonic temples. Right. Yeah. So it wouldn't be no big surprise if it turned out that uh, blue jeans were sort of. Well, I, I've said this before, and I, and I, I think it is. Um, I think it's totally valid. Is that? I mean, we we are uh, farmed. Like the average person is domesticated. Even if you look up the definition of civilization, it says the, the domestication of people, humans, and animals. So it's, it's a domestication process. That if you live in civilization, you're you're domesticated. You're a domesticated product. And that that's all comes out of these uh uh what you say mystery school religions or what have you. I think a lot of this stuff that comes out that is supposed to be uh mystery school stuff is just flim flam. It's distraction and red herring. And I think the I think uh so the the real central tenet of the mystery schools is how to how how to control masses of people and be at the uh receiving end of all the benefits of uh fooling a bunch of people into being slaves and not even realizing they're slaves and then there's the whole principle of them mocking their slaves so get them all to wear colors representing the blue lodge represent it's like a it's like a brand or and then they give us brands you know uh, just like cattle have brands, and then we. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting that everybody's wearing a pair of jeans that say Levi on them when Levi is a priest, right, of the mystery school. Yeah, Levi, and then there's the Levitical priesthood. So I guess that's uh, maybe a, a reference to that as well. I'm not sure, but. Well, yeah. well, even 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 in the even in the you know the Hebraic or the Christian, aren't the Levites the ones who kind of uh, they're the bad ones? Uh, I don't know about the Levitical priesthood. I I, I don't know if they were. Uh, well, of course, all their priesthoods and everything became corrupted, but. Um... I thought I thought it was like the sons of Levi were the cursed ones or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, sure. um, the uh, yeah, it, I mean, that's what you have. I mean, take for instance neckties. It's just like you're saying, like neckties are absolutely one hundred percent a Masonic creation. And at one time in France, only Masons wore neckties. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, and so the necktie actually comes from Freemasons wearing uh, wearing uh, neckties. Uh, so yeah, uh, when you graduate a university, you get the they they give you the uh, mortar board to wear on your head with the tassel. And that's Masonic, from what I understand. Like the mortar boards where they put the uh, grout or the uh, mortar material on, you know, like you see people working stone and stuff like that. They'll have the, it's like a, just a, 
flat piece of wood or something like that to put the put the uh, masonry on to mix, and then they put it on the stone when they're setting stones. That's right. That, they have you wear that on your head when you graduate. That's right, because you've been shaped. You're a blockhead. Yeah, and you have your... Your round head has been squared. But um, just remember one thing, Chris. Uh, one thing that we've learned from this whole this whole discussion, it's their world. You're just living in it. Yeah, apparently. That's what uh, I think a lot of that stuff communicates, right? And yeah, and and so I, I think to kind of sum it up at the you know at the end, if if um, if you got something uh, else you want to add as as well, go ahead. But uh, I think I'll sum up my end of it is that I enjoy living in California. I enjoy old architecture, even um, if I do believe that there was a plan behind it. And I can go and read uh, things about the particular architects who designed a lot of the uh, architecture, and they had utopian ideas. They were obviously uh, masons themselves and uh, employed philosophy and ideas into their structures, and there was a homogenization of, of building structures and all sorts of things like that. Then you also have, uh, like we said, a lot of these cults and Eastern religion and theosophy and all sorts of stuff flocking out here. Uh, all sorts of people flocked out to Southern California as well because they were told that uh, it was healthy to live in the dry climate for tuberculosis. Um, it, all sorts of health gurus and charlatans uh, came out here and um, employed a lot of chicanery. Um, of course, we see a lot of health and wellness chicanery in the modern-day conspiracy theory patriot movement as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right, and so it's it's and a lot of uh, mystery school mysticism, new age nonsense, uh, in in uh, all of that. So it all of this stuff is alive and well, and like I said, Southern California is the birthplace of a lot of these uh, things, and it's also a place where elites flocked to conquer, to bring the railroads, to connect the world. Um, uh, think of all the things that were going on in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, people were forced to have electricity put into their homes. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, railroads, um, either, you know, railroads either uh, made or broke your town. Mm -hmm. You know, you had towns that existed out here before the railroads came out. And people were doing just fine living up, but what did the, the railroad brought commerce, the railroad brought um, expansion, and you could either have the railroad come through your town or not through your town. And um, uh, yeah, if you if, uh, if if you didn't play ball, the railroad would go, you know, make another town outside of your town and put your town out of business and get everybody to come move into the center of commerce. And once again, we see that happening now um, where the beehives, where the futuristic beehive is going to be created for the center of commerce. And 
Uh, they'll move everybody out of the suburban landscape and into the beehive of the, of the city. And like we talked about before, they've been demonizing uh, single-family residences and suburban landscapes for a very long time. Just like they're demonizing uh, the automobile, which once again something that proliferated out of uh, this area as far as like uh, commuting and driving uh, places. And slowly but surely that'll be wrapped up after uh, years of being a uh, problem. And see, so one thing that you, another thing you can learn, and like I said, I'll just end it right here with this last statement. One thing we can learn is that we, you know, just because these things existed in another time period doesn't necessarily mean they were the best way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the way that's going to be provided for you in the future to solve all these problems is going to be good either. So, um, so, uh, you have anything else to say, Chris? I just, yeah, well, I mean, it's, um, yeah, to look at all how the, what, what, of all the things to get kind of entrenched in that particular one little sliver of one little continent on the planet. And it, yeah, it's interesting to look at it from that perspective. And you got to ask yourself, well, why? Like, what, why those particular things, like, uh, Middle Eastern, uh, religious practices and then out of those even if you look into that uh, with meditation and 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 all that um i've heard too that the types of meditation that has been popularized is not really it ha doesn't have much in common with the traditional practices of uh over in the middle east so it's not only, right. well, we, yes, we, it's, we, uh, it's an adulteration of those, but this is okay. So you have this very specific adulteration of a very specific, uh, type of religious practice. And then like, you know, you cherry pick those particular practices and, and, and those become trend trends and, uh, uh, integral part of that culture out there. And it's like, well, why? Yeah, you also got to factor in uh, Hollywood as well, because Hollywood is a good place to proliferate a lot of these uh, belief systems out there into uh, the rest of the world. And so, you know, just taking one particular branch of that would be theosophy. And what was the goal of theosophy? Well, it was to merge the beliefs of the East with the beliefs of the West. And what better place to uh, proliferate that out than... Hollywood. And of course, you've got a lot of, um, you know, dumb stars and starlets who would, who would lots of money to spend. And, um, as, as you know, we've explored there as far back as the 1900s, there were gurus. And then of course, all the way up into the present day, you have gurus telling, uh, rich people and, movie stars what to do with their money and that is mostly give it to them and uh, they're going to provide the way and as as much as it is as it is about making money as well it's also about spreading the gospel so 
when we go into our next HBC report, speaking of spreading the gospel, our next HBC report will be um, also connected to Southern California, and we will get into um, the Jesus movement of the 19, late 1960s and 70s and how that turned into the cultural movement that we know it to be today. Well, yeah, that'll be interesting. And this has been an interesting talk as well, Chris, and I appreciate you uh, talking with me about this and letting, letting me uh, uh, delve into this subject. And um, we'll talk about it next time. All right, yeah, sounds good, man. Appreciate it. Good deal. All right. It's been an, this has been an HBC special report. <laughs> All right, I'll just stop the recording. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.